The History Things Podcast is brought to you by TR Historical, your one-stop shop for all your historical fan gear needs. Visit trhistorical.com and use the promo code HISTORYTHINGS to receive 10% off your next purchase. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the show. Are you ready? What's up, everybody? Welcome to the History Things Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat McGuire, and joining me as always is my co-host with the most, you know him, you love him, author, historian, park ranger, ladies and gentlemen, the extraordinary! Hey, I'm extraordinary today. Always, oh, buddy. Matt Borders, Matty B. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, man. Happy birthday. Thanks, man. We're recording tonight on my birthday. It's weird. <laughs> well, we're glad to be able to hang out with you. Oh, well, thanks, man. But Sorry there's no cake. No, that's okay, because tonight we've got something just as interesting and almost just as sweet. Oh, oh. damn, that was so good. What a setup. We're going to tee that one right up. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Our very good friend, also a park ranger, also Woo! legendary, Rob Ambrose. How you doing, buddy? Welcome back. I'm great. I'm glad to be here. And again, happy birthday, man. Thanks. I'm again sorry. There's this no is... cake. Guys, <laughs> Jesus. You know, this is cool, though. I never like it to hang out with friends on their birthday. So, you know, since I was like 12. So I this is cool. I try to hide my birthday so people don't even know that it's my birthday. So thanks for even acknowledging <laughs> I was going to say, not this year with Instagram, buddy. No, no. <laughs> no. Dude, you picked some choice photos, too. I was like, damn. Hit me dirty. There was like a photo of me doing like the crotch thrust. And it was uh, there were a couple of uh, um, interesting images. Look, man, the uh, the blooper reels of the History <laughs> Things podcast go deep. <laughs> All right, guys. So tonight we're back to continue the story of Fort Frederick. Right? We had an awesome time with you last time, Rob. Uh, we took it through one fort, three wars. Right? We spent some time in the uh, in the French and Indian War mm-hmm. era of the fort. We lived through the uh, American Revolution era of the fort as well as the american civil war in 1860s so we went from like oh, roughly what like 90 i can't do math like 110 year period of time right we went from the yeah. 1750s to like the 1860s absolutely um and we cut it off just because at a certain point we're running out of tape you know we're recording on a really old analog machine here real to real like we got parker in the background here like mixing wheels and connecting tape like the old little engineer monkeys there's a mouse on a track somewhere running the electricity it's jerry-rigged, but um, the story is so much bigger than just the active military uses of the fort. Um, obviously, today, you work there uh, interpreting the history as well as sort of the the lands around the fort in the in the modern-day context. So what I want to do tonight is continue that story a little bit. So I want to take it through into the 20th century, right? The Civilian Conservation Corps is a huge part of why you even have a job today, Um so I want to definitely tell their story. And then I want to get into some questions and clarifications. We'll just talk. Uh, we'll have a general conversation about Fort Frederick because that's, like I said on the, in the big show uh, at, on a July 1st, there's just every time I talk to you about it, I learn something new. Like, I've known you for years and years and years, and you're still dropping nuggets. So, Rob, um, the story after the American Civil War, the fort goes kind of really dark. When the Civil War troops ended up there, 
1861, they found a derelict fort, right? And it was sort of in ruins it already. Was a ruin, yeah, it yeah. was a ruin. Yes, it's described absolutely. as a ruin. Yes. So the Civil War ends. What happens to the fort in the next, let's say, 40 years till the turn of the century into the 20th century? Well, not a lot, really. I mean, it, it, the, the Civil War ends. The Williams family who uh, owned the property, Nathan Williams and his family, these are African-Americans, and they are there from basically from 1850 until 1911. They own the property. It's about 51 years. And besides the colony slash state of Maryland, they are the longest-running owner of the property. Wow. Now... I say not a lot happens because there's, you know, there's no battles, there's no war, there's nothing exciting in that realm. But the Williams story is pretty interesting um, as, as, the, as, as being there. I mean, the idea that they're living, these, these freed African-Americans living there during the Civil War, right on the border between Virginia and um, Maryland, in, in itself is a story I wish there was more, to docu- more documents out there to, to, to get into. And you'd mentioned uh, during the first show that he, the part of the Williams family, might have even done some spying. Yes, yes. During during the Civil War. Yes. So so Nathan Williams is is accused by the Union for being a a spy for the Confederates. Oh my. Um, that's not the case. I mean, that does <laughs> not seem to be the case. Anyways, he is definitely uh, consorting with the enemy. Because he is taking goods from his farm into Virginia, into Berkeley County and Hedgesville, Martinsburg area, and apparently selling them to the Confederates. So he's making bank. He is making bank. My understanding from, from the family tradition is when he's doing that, he is then coming back into Maryland, finding the local commander or whoever and saying, hey, here's what I saw. Mm, okay. But at one point, he is actually chased down, basically, by Union troops because they think he's a spy. And um, gets questioned, so loyalty gets questioned, but he seems to, to skate. He's like, I am, but for you guys, you don't understand. I'm on same <laughs> same team, same, same team. team. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so he's he's working both sides in a way. I do not think he's a double agent. No, he's mm. making a buck off one while passing information to the righteous. To the other, yeah. yeah. Right, absolutely. So, yeah, so he's he's got that interesting story. Um, and his descendants still live in the region? Yes, oh, yes. Awesome. He has he has family that still lives in the in the Hagerstown area. He has also family that lives all over the all over the country mm. from California and I think met somebody recently from his family from Ohio and whatnot. So they're they're spread out, but he still has direct descendants living in in Hagerstown and the Hagerstown region. Do they visit the fort? So yeah, it's it's been interesting. They they have had a couple of family reunions at the at the park, hmm. um, but in the last couple of years, I have met several folks that have a connection. Actually, I guess both of them last year or two that just showed up. Um, one was a you know whatever ex great grandson and. Um, another one was apparently actually stepchildren of a, of a family member, but they were checking out their, that, that's part of their story. So yeah, so they still come around and I know, um, I contact and in contact with one of his, uh, great granddaughters, I guess it is. Um, I might, might be two greats, but you know. Forgive me on that, but yeah. I the said, great thing is confusing. Yeah, <laughs> and then you get into like second cousin. Then you say right. things like once removed. It's like I get right. it. But yeah. she she's still around and very very active in in um, 
African-American history and, and uh, somebody I can still kind of call on every now and then and uh, That's ask, awesome. ask questions. And, and I'd, I'd love to, once pandemic's over, to really sit down with her because we've been threatening to compare notes for a while. Oh, because, no. <laughs> because, yeah, because I've, uh, I, I, the I, first time I met her, I actually was doing a talk on Nathan Williams for um, Black History Month. And uh, that was that was one of my most nervous experiences in my life. She spoke up in the back, and she was like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> and you were like, "Oh no." She did speak up from the back. <laughs> oh yes, but she actually said, "I didn't know that." That's awesome. And wow. a couple of times, I would say stuff to her. I'm like, "Hey, what do you know about this?" And she would fill it in. So we at times had a nice little dialogue. I was going to say That's you cool. made it more of a engagement as opposed to. Um, a conflict. Yeah. That's a fascinating concept. We have another buddy um, in your park ranger ranks, Rich Condon, down mm-hmm. at National Reconstruction Site down in Beaufort, South Carolina, and he works with a descendant of Robert Smalls. That's awesome. And so there's like a, there's like a tangible connection to the site and relatives. Like So I, that's really cool that you get to experience that with Nathan Williams' family. Yeah, awesome. it's, it is. And I, I'm, I feel honored that I get to be the keeper of that story to a point. And and to help, you know, help tell that story. And it's a story that we, we want to tell, we like to tell, we're hoping to tell more of um, as, as we move forward. And it's just, it's, it's just such a unique aspect. And, you, you know, little old rural Washington County, it's just <laughs> a story that doesn't, it, it kind of blows people's minds a little I'm bit. I'm pretty certain that you guys are people's first and likely only exposure to Nathan Williams when they come to the fort. I don't think that too many people are going to come across him unless they're looking through a very niche local sort of history. Like, if you're from California, I don't think this is a guy you're going to come across. So, like, you guys are actually doing... You're keeping him alive. Like, I have some deep philosophical thoughts on memory, but, like, so what is that whole thing that, uh, as long as people remember, remember your name, like, you're still alive kind of thing, and, like, that's awesome that you get to do that with his legacy. Yeah, no, it is, and it I'm... I, I love it. And like I said, it's it's one of those things where and sometimes I wish we had more, maybe more people to help tell the story because, you know, we have so many stories to tell. And that one sometimes gets overshadowed by the, the military histories or, you know, it, and there's other people that they come in. And luckily we have a Civil War trails marker that talks about the Williamses. So some people come in, they see that. And they come in and they start asking questions. We've also have set up in our, our, our literature a walking tour based on the Williams family experience at the park. So so nice. people are getting a little more. And then, of course, when we get our new museum exhibit, there'll be a pretty good little section on them. And then now the, the, the ultimate, and it's so exciting for us, so exciting for me, is that they on the property is the one-room schoolhouse that they deeded the property to for African-American children to be taught and this building dates 1898-1899 and then I'll back up a little bit once it tells but we're in the process of getting it restored back to its original appearance wow wonderful um, and we're hoping although it's a very small building that that minimally will be able to help tell the story of rural African American education but hopefully that we'll be able to in time interpret it to help tell the Williams story itself because the Williamses are very much involved in early African-American education um, in Washington County. And um, we know that his one son, I think it's Charles, and his one daughter, I think it might be Betty, were both teachers. Both apparently were Store College graduates in Harpers Ferry. And their teachers at this school at one time or another. 
the Williamses had 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 a school on the property since like the 1870s. Wow. But this building was built later, and this was property that they cut off an acre or so off of their lot for the school system to to build this little schoolhouse. So it's it's just a neat neat story. And and from my understanding, the school there was the second one in the county. So there was only one other. And that might have been something to do. I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't know which school it was, but because I know that there was some stuff going on, like at Tolson Chapel and right, stuff. Exactly. But I don't know if that's two schools in Washington County. Well, there ends up being a lot more. But well, I was going to say that's the end of the progressiveness of Washington County. No, I'm just <laughs> no, 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 no. There, there are definitely a lot more. Shots um, fired. Yeah, shots fired. <laughs> um. In defense of Washington County, it is the first... Recover, Rob. It is the first county, state, city, or anything named after George Washington. You're right. Okay. <laughs> Look, if you can't stay in the heat, don't get in the kitchen, right, <laughs> listeners out there? I, I like to throw shade. It's all in love, right? I lived in Hagerstown for a while. I had a good time in Hub City. Uh, Shout out to all our listeners out there. Thank you for tuning in. Yes. Clean up the city. It's a beautiful place. Weird people live there. It's got some cool stuff. Yeah, no, I just, right as I was moving out, I found the, um, like, the train graveyard roundabout station thing Mm -hmm. that they have, and I never knew that was there, and I was like, this is such a cool site, like, fix this up and advertise this place, like, that's awesome. Yeah, you've got the old Roundhouse Museum, you've got the Railroad Museum in City Park. You have the art museum. You got the mm-hmm. Hager House. Yeah. Plus, I mean, all of the, the hospitals that were there in the Civil War. Oh right? yeah, yeah. Uh, the I know it's a little pocket park, but you've got the Spanish American War Memorial Park, which is just kind of cool. That's right where I live. That's on Oak Hill Avenue. Yeah, that's right where I yeah, live. Right next to the old uh, National Guard Armory that I think Henry Kid Douglas was the commander of. When my wife and I were dating, uh, we when we first started dating, I was living out there, and every single time we drove past that captured cannon, I'd be like, "Hey, you know when we captured that cannon?" And to the point now where, like, my wife, A, gets so annoyed when I do that. But now she'll preempt it. And she'll be like, hey, you know, we captured this cannon at, uh, you know, Spanish-American War. I'll be like, yeah. Yeah, I do know that. I like that monument for two reasons. One, it's cool it's a captured Spanish-American War cannon. But that cannon is actually like a 17... 40s or 50s French cannon. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. it's got the cool like, it's, like it's, cloud it's, blowing out the uh, yeah, face got, blowing the cloud on the back got, of the cannon. Mm-hmm. Literally has actual dolphins for yeah. the yes. dolphins. Yep. And it's just, it's a work of art in itself. And when I first saw it, I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I was I was excited it was a Spanish-American war because that's kind of one of my little, little fortes. But when I saw what it was, I was like, wow, the stories this cannon could tell. Another place you can find a bunch of guns like that is the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Mm-hmm. They oh, have certainly. a ton of guns like that. And it, it throws you because you're like, why would they use these in battle? They're so pretty. Mm-hmm. They're probably super deadly. So uh, <laughs> love you, Hagerstown. Yeah. No, no, no mean to throw the poop at you, but, you know, anyway. Um, all right. So real quick, some clarifications before we continue the story. because. Okay. We also do like to have some fun here. So uh, we were having fun on the last episode talking about um, Benedict Arnold, our yeah. favorite trader piece of trash. <laughs> and uh, no, I shouldn't editorialize that much. I just, you know, I feel very comfortable behind this microphone sometimes. But it's true. No, you're, <laughs> yes, I was, was going to double back and double down. And it's, I don't actually regret the saying that. The most brilliant man in the army. Yeah, who you picked. Wah, yeah. Wah. But he, um, you know, he was, uh, when he switched sides, he was in command of the American Legion, right? Which was a British unit. Uh, we have an American Legion in the United States today, and I had asked on the show if there was any connection. That was obviously a very silly question, but I just kind of wanted to 
venture into that a little bit just to clarify. So, Rob, can you tell us a little bit about just the fact that that was a British unit versus the modern American Legion? Matt, maybe you can chime in on stuff like that. Yeah, so Benedict Arnold, in the midst of his traitorous... Uh, escapades basically said, I'm so cool, I'm so famous, I'm so great that the American people will just flock to me and I'm going to create this American legion. Was this when he was crossing the river into Maryland in 1860? Wait, never mind. Different different story, different timeline. Sorry. Yeah, don't 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 mess with this. This, this gets romanticized enough as it is, one way or the other. You're right. Um, so he thinks that all these guys are going to flock to him, and typically, at, at least in my understanding of military, a legion is going to be a mixed unit. It's going to have infantry, it's going to have cavalry, it's going to have artillery, instead of just an infantry regiment or whatever. So he's expecting to basically have this big unit of all these dis- disenfranchised Americans that are going to join his banner, and it doesn't really happen. He gets some, but not at the level that he wants. And I know he's very gets very frustrated because he is so vain. Yeah, he probably thinks the song is about him. Yeah, he is so vainglorious. God, you didn't. I did. Matt, Matthew Borders. Yes, I did do it. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, he leads this legion and, and uh, other troops. They end up going down into Virginia, the Tidewater, Virginia, and start raiding into Virginia in 1780. 80, 17, yeah, 1780, which actually goes back and plays into the role of the, of the fort, you know, because they send a lot of the prisoners from Virginia, from Charlottesville up because of the raid on Richmond. Right. And then I was actually, you know, talking about, I'm always telling you new stuff, things I'm learning, things I'm picking up. There was even a false report that they were getting ready to attack Alexandria. They were making it that far. Wow. What? So yeah, which they didn't. But but there's but there's just a, the fact that that was the rumor mill. Yeah, and they were like, we've got to get the prisoners out of Winchester. We've got to get them out of Charlottesville. We've got to get them into Fort Frederick because the British are coming. Right. Hey, they're British. At this was point. Paul they're Revere there? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were talking about Benedict Arnold. We are. Um, Plot twist. Yeah. Paul Revere comes riding in. <laughs> Just to be clear, there's about like 40 other people that deserve credit in the Paul Revere ride story, which we'll touch on another day, but like, it's not all him. And there weren't only guys, so breaking news, there's a huge story there in and of itself. Yeah. So yeah. So so the British are coming and it's not Boston. Yeah, it's not Boston. So they they end up, you know, they like think Hampton, Virginia Falls, and they they burn it, and they end up uh, um, burning Richmond, and uh, old Thomas Jefferson runs with this tail between his legs away from Richmond and there's there's always some people that kind of like kind of say shame shame on him for doing that but oh, guy he, only wrote the declaration cut yeah, him a break and, yeah. and it, he wasn't a military officer or anything so whatever only one of the most brilliant men that ever lived <laughs> jabroni but he ends up if I'm not mistaken sort of getting stuck back down sort of in Tidewater Virginia and and doesn't really accomplish much besides these raids which of course make him look worse to propaganda wise. He's burning cities. Right. He's terrorizing his people. Yeah. Not his people anymore, but his supposedly his people. So That's yeah. He, Do we have a rough idea on how much his fame, as you were saying, kind of draws to him? How how many guys actually join the American Legion? Roughly? I, I don't know. Okay. I, I honestly don't know, but it is not anywhere near it's what he's not a legion. Yeah, it's not a legion. I'm thinking we might be talking hundreds of guys. He was thinking thousands of sure. guys. Uh, but yeah, it's not not at all what what he he hopes for. So just without getting into the whole lesson of that, so how does that just manifest out for the rest of the war? Does he just kind of exist here and like that's it? And then when the war ends, he goes home, or does he have to leave beforehand because he's not 
achieving the successes he thought he was going to. I, honestly, I'm going to use the real best interpreter answer. I don't know. That's a great answer. That's a good interpreter. That's I don't a know. That's a good interpreter. I don't know. And, and honestly, because he's such... A tool? I'm yeah, sorry. Yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. Well, sorry. this is good because you probably had to bleep out whatever I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so I take that. Uh, Rob, you're a family man. Get I don't, it together on this show. I don't even, you know, I don't even care what he did. You know, Rob does not mince words yeah. when it comes to Benedict Arnold. No. no, no. Benedict Arnold is, you know, to me, the ultimate traitor. PSA for a moment. I don't know is a great answer. If you really don't know something, don't Say make it. up an answer. <laughs> right. Yeah, don't make it up. The more you know. I'm going to play this, the music do, do, right do, there. Do. I like that. Like the NBC. If somehow I could, we could watch this, there would be the, the NBC star. I love it. Yeah. This is your brain. It's your brain on drugs. Except Benedict Arnold's a f***ing tool. Yeah. So It's his, um, it's his head with the rainbow. <laughs> exactly. So, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about the American American Legion? Sure. They've got nothing to do with Benedict Arnold's American Legion. Woo! Uh, formed in 1919, they're a post-World War I veterans organization with the name American Legion because, as Rob was implying, a legion would be multiple branches all in one command. That's exactly what the American Legion is to, at that point in 1919 up through to today. It accepts all branches of American service. So if you think about we had in quarter one, we had our buddy Ben Frail on from yep. the uh, Sons of Union Veterans, Veterans of the of Civil, Civil War. War. They are keepers of the modern, uh, they are the modern day keepers of the original GAR legacy, a veterans organization right. in the wake of the American Civil War. The American Legion is a similar veterans organization in the wake of the First World War. Nothing to do with the big giant tool douchebag <laughs> Benedict Arnold, traitor. LLC. Wait, that's not a business. Jesus. Anyway, all right, so cool. So nothing to do with uh, with each other there, so just wanted to clear that up for you guys out there, and also saying I don't know when you know something is a perfectly acceptable answer. And um, because I know there's going to be one really smart person out there listening going, hey, but what about the other American Legion? Yeah. There was Matt Anthony Wayne's American Legion ah, after mm-hmm. the American Revolution, the Battle of Falling Timbers. Basically, it was when we created a mm, very small American regular army to go fight the American Indians out west, and it is also known as the American Legion. Uh, but again, no relationship to the other in the uh, so three separate American legions, y'all. Two of them, though, not traitorous. So <laughs> two out of three ain't bad, as they say, you know, in Ireland. Um, That'd be a good batting average. Yeah, it would be. If you were two out of three hundred, get you in the Hall of Fame That's after right. a while, right? So, um, all right. So I want to talk about paroling next. So, like these sort of jump follow up thingies are all over the place. Right? There's kind of George Carlin of this. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no transitional material here. Parole so, is one of Pat's favorite topics. It as is. You may remember. I've yes. been paroled multiple times. Wait. Did I say that on the mic? You no, did. No, I didn't. I have, dude. Everybody out there listening, I've never been paroled. I escaped every time. Um, so, can you elaborate on the uh, the wartime practice of parole and just kind of how it was utilized differently in the fort during the Revolution and the American Civil War? Yeah. So, parole is interesting because parole is the standard European way of dealing with prisoners. That said, the American Revolution has some real hang-ups on both sides to this system. So to explain the parole system in brief, basically, if your troops, British, American, whoever you are, get captured in battle, you surrender, you would then be put in confinement somewhere briefly while you wait to be paroled. And usually a parole 
is a one-for-one trade-off. So um, if it was Americans and British, so the, the Americans would get however many American troops and the British would get however many British troops in equal numbers back from the other side in prisoners. Sometimes that's an issue when one side has more prisoners than the other. But you would trade basically exchange one for one prisoners. It sounds like go fish with POWs. Do you have four lieutenants? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> go fish. But I'll take two captains. That is absolutely true. You would it would also be by rank, yeah. Yep. And if sometimes if you wanted I've got a general and you wanted and you didn't have one, <laughs> you might be able to trade like some colonels and lieutenants or something, but typically it was one for one. Unless it was somebody really important, and then sometimes they kind of were douchey about it. Like, I imagine <laughs> if you, let's just say you captured Benjamin Martin, who was a totally legitimately real historical figure. Um, <laughs> I can't even continue the joke. Mel Gibson was not a real historical figure. Although Mel Gibson will be a real historical figure at some point in the future. Mel Gibson was point. a composite of several historical yes, figures. Absolutely. Benjamin Martin was, you mean, because Mel sorry, Gibson yes. is just Mel Gibson. That's true. <laughs> um, but the point Touché. being is, like, if they captured somebody of, no, like, let's say they captured Cornwallis, right? And they, the British would probably, you know, want him back or whatever, and they'd make it pretty sizable deal for that yes know. yeah and and sometimes they would even we'll give do, you a th- we'll give you a whole regiment back for that guy yeah they could do that too that that was potential but like i said usually it was kind of a one-for-one tit-for-tat but yeah they could do that if they needed to um but it didn't it didn't work that way in in, in north america in the 1770s and 1780s the parole ever before we continue ever work like with goods you know, captured goods, things like that. Like, hey, you give us back the colonel, we'll give you back like some rice. Not that I've ever heard. No, of. no, no, because of the logistics, that's a whole other yeah. of, of how they dealt with that is a whole other thing. So parole, not only is it a one for one typically trade, there is a you are given a parole. You are given a a, a piece of paper that says you were paroled. Um, on your honor, and and what's supposed to happen is so. Let's say in the case of America, if let's say I was from, uh, because it's one of my favorites, seventy first regiment of foot, British regiment, and they've captured the entire seventy first regiment. Didn't happen quite that way, but let's say they did. Hmm. So once they were captured, if they would have been paroled and exchanged for American troops, those seventy first Highlanders would have been shipped back to England. They were the part of the parole is you were not to fight in the same war. You were just in. Like, you can't just parole them and go back to the lines and start fighting. You have to be sent somewhere. And people, like, did that? And they did that. Yes. So this is in the this romantic is, era This of is warfare. the gentlemanly, European, manly, as they would have thought, genteel, civilized war. Right. I guess that one's over, right? Well, and they would continue to do this through other conflicts. I mean, it goes right up to the American Civil War, and it has a real hard time later in the war, but earlier in the war, like all 12,000, essentially all 12,000 troops of Harper's Ferry, when they're captured, they're paroled. They they go back to... Camp Douglas. Well, first they go to uh, Camp Parole outside of Annapolis, and then they're sent to Camp Douglas. Which, just modern-day Parole, Maryland, named for Camp Parole, also the parole system that we're talking about right now, absolutely directly related to the modern day name of parole, Maryland. Right now in the case, correct me if I'm wrong. 
In the case of the American Civil War, like those Union soldiers, they're being, like you say, Camp Douglas. These are being sent somewhere where they are not in the area of the conflict because you can't send them to another country. Right. So they're either going to send them out west to garrison forts or they're going to send them to guard prisoners. They're going to send them some way away from combat operations so they are not directly in the war. Now, I don't think it was being done that way on the other side. And the Confederates, I'm pretty sure a lot of those guys were... They, and, and they may not have. They may have basically some of them gotten sort of a parole to go home, and they'd go home for a while, but then they'd go back to the fight. Yeah. Right, which was the problem and why the system eventually breaks down. Right, yeah. What's interesting about those uh, 62 guys that get sent to Douglas is that they have their weapons and everything taken away from them, and they're just sitting around for a couple of months. Now, they're sort of guarding prisoners there, other POWs at Camp Douglas, but then a late fall, early winter of 62, they get their weapons back. They're told that they have been formally exchanged. They stick around to guard prisoners for a little while with arms now, and then they're shipped back east. Because a bunch of those guys are captured at the wilderness, like way later in the war, like in right. 64. Like I'm pretty sure there's one of those, like, B B rate D rate Civil War films out. I think called Union Bound. I think they're what is that the 121st New York. I couldn't tell you. I'm pretty sure they're one of the. I'm so if you're out there listening and I'm wrong, shout it out politely, please. But <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that the 121st New York is captured. Like a lot of them are captured during the wilderness. But at Harper's Ferry, I think they're there, and I think they're only in the army for like three weeks before they're. Or they're captured by... Uh, well, that's the 125th. Is that... For sure. I, maybe it's that's who I'm thinking of then, but I've kind of sworn it was the 121st, but... So that's sort of... So we're all sort of kind of answering the question all at once, so we kind of just bled into... So the, so the American Revolution has this more traditionally observed... Yes. ...parole system. Um, not always. Uh, I guess, does this break down during the Revolution? This breaks down immediately. Like a, like what like seventy seventeen seventy five okay wow. this starts breaking down immediately so pre declaration yes all right so there if there are typically and I'm you know this is sort of over simplifying if there are exchanges of prisoners if there are paroles and exchanges they are usually done by local commanders at the local level without the consent of their government because the Prisoners are probably logistical burdens on the commands doing the exchanging. Sure. So Colonel Pat McGuire has... Thanks for that. Yeah, has some prisoners. And uh, Colonel Matt Borders has some prisoners. And they've been fighting it out. And they're like, hey, let's parlay. Let's exchange prisoners. They don't tell General Howe or Burgoyne or Washington or anybody. They just kind of do it. And that happens. But on the governmental level, it doesn't really happen. And there's... One really good reason for it, in order for you to exchange prisoners and parole, you would have to accept that your enemy is a separate belligerent nation or group. Yep. So by exchanging prisoners from the level of, say, the King of England and Congress, the King of England would be acknowledging tacitly that America was, the United States was independent. So do you think King George the Third and Abraham Lincoln would have a lot in common in a conversation about this? On this particular topic? Yes. yes. And I'm pretty sure in the press they were Lincoln was compared to King George the Third. Oh, Lincoln was compared yeah, to was. more than once. <laughs> yeah, he was. So so yeah, so this causes a problem because if they do this at a, at that level, it 
acknowledges American independence, but the English consider it more of a, a civil war, a civil disobedience. These are our people. They're British. We're British. We can't, we can't, we can't negotiate with our own people. I try to explain this to people all the time when they try to like understand the American Revolution. It's like, you got to understand, for us, the American Revolution was everything. It was our war of independence. For the English Empire, it was another thing. It was a Tuesday. It was another thing going on in their global empire. Like, like they were opening their business interests in India around this time. And they're, I'm sure that was a lot more lucrative to them than what was happening in the States. So when we're over here causing a ruckus, I'm sure they were like, God damn it. But, like, I'm sure they weren't like, oh, no, the sky is falling. Well, you get into the politics of it. I mean, there were a lot of, of members of parliament that were sympathetic to the American cause. Absolutely. It, 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 so it is... It That's why is, we're friends now. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was literally in there, you know, again, overgeneralizing it. It was a civil disturbance. Yeah. We've got people that are, you know, our own people that need, you know... Put back in line. They need to be um, wrangled up a bit there, chap. You know, smack them around a bit. Keep them in line. So I could be British. You could <laughs> be something. something. I mean, oh, that, that was really bad cockney. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> I'm not sure what that was. It's better than I could do. So I, I give you... I yeah. give you if I'm I'm the Russian judge I give you six point three. Wow, that's very generous of you. Thank you, comrade. Especially for the Russians. <laughs> I just want to point out before we continue that if you listen to David Kincaid, I'm just Private McGuire. But according to Park Ranger Rob Ambrose, I am Colonel McGuire. So thank you for that. <laughs> Makes me feel very good. Um, all right. So during the Civil War, though, we're dealing with kind of a similar situation. Abraham Lincoln is not trying to acknowledge southern sovereignty you know as as a confederate states of america so i know parole goes on a lot longer than than what it sounds like you're describing with the american revolution but inevitably it breaks down for a lot of reasons so um with the american civil war parole i mean just how would you describe like why does it last longer like i just i guess is a it's a really weird general way of asking the question but like you describe the american revolution as breaking down immediately but we're talking 62 at Harper's Ferry is September. We're well, we're way more than a year into the war at that point. And it's going to go on for about another year before it breaks down. Yeah. So, like, why do you think that is? I, you know, I, I don't know. That's a great question. Why was it, why did it break down so much faster in the American Revolution than it did in the American Civil War? That's, that's a tough one because, you know, the Union knew what the Confederate when they were getting their guys back, pretty much they were going back into service where we're freeing up men for frontline duty. And the same thing was happening in the North. I mean, the, the, the Confederates kind of knew that too. Oh, well, so they send the guys to guard prisoners. Well, the guys who were guarding prisoners can now go fight on the front lines. Um, so it, it hurt both sides. And I, I, but why it took them so long to, one of the other things to consider as I'm listening to this, maybe I'll pose the question is maybe the stakes are higher during the American Civil War as far as the losing, like what the consequences long term for everybody mean as far as like, so let's say the Americans lose the revolution, right? Let's say, you know, we don't win our war of independence. The founding fathers are screwed. They're all going to be done up as traitors, things like that. But the general population is just going to kind of go back to being British and life's going to go on. If the South were to have won the Civil War or if there was to have been some different ending to the war other than the one that we got, that would have irreparably, like irreparably is a good word. There's a lot of different words you can use to describe it, but it would have changed, altered whatever 
everything. Right. Like everything for everybody. Like not just the leaderships involved, like the average citizen would have felt this on huge. So I think maybe for Lincoln, specifically Lincoln, right? Because he's the only one officially in charge of a sovereign nation in this equation. If you had, if you were to think of both of the American Revolution parole system or whatever as a like a needle you had to thread, I would say the Civil War needle is a smaller eye. It is, and it's he needs to be aware or sensitive to that because the cons- I would say the stakes are higher in the 1860s than maybe they are in the 1770s. That weird to pose it like that, but I it could be. Yeah, it could be. It's an interesting comparison, Pat. The the reasons why the cartel, or I should say, the exchange structure, which is known as the Dix Hill Cartel in the Civil War, you watch your mouth, Matt Borders. Um, the reason it breaks down is is very well established. Why, and it has it has everything to do with the United States colored troops and right. how and how they will be will or will not be treated uh, in the Confederacy and in the Confederate POW structure, but the the fact that it lasts so long, that the cartel continues for so long, this exchange of forces continues for so long until late 63 is very interesting. And I think your topic, if you will, that conversation point of why do we have these two structures in these two conflicts and then... One goes to crap immediately. Like right away. Right. And the other one doesn't. I think you have your dissertation topic right there, sir. Ooh. You heard it here, folks. We're live on the air. Um, well, one day we might cross that bridge, mates. There you <laughs> go. All right. Um, you spoke of a Civil War diarist a lot in the big episode when we were talking about the actions around Fort Frederick. Putting you on the spot gave you no prep time. You ever find his name? Ooh. I think it's there. I think he's got it. Give me a second. Elijah Manor. Yes! Elijah Manor. Yes! Sorry, I kept thinking about the guy who edited it, which was Steve French, mm-hmm. who was actually an answer. Uh, they're relatives, like somewhere in the tree. But yeah, I was kept thinking, Steve French, don't know. Yeah, Elijah Manor. <laughs> Elijah Manor is, is the diarist, the pro-Confederate diarist from from the Hedgesville um, area in Berkeley County, basically almost directly across from Fort Frederick, within a few miles. So he kind of is in the know of what's going on right around that area. All right, so we're putting a name to a recounting from the first episode. All right, so... Four next, years along the Tillhance is the book. All right, next one we're going to do. Uh, Rob and I were actually just discussing this in pre-show prep last night. Von Braun. Related to Warner Von Braun? No. Right, because we discovered it's not even Von Braun. It's like Von Braun with M's as in Michael, not N as in Nancy. Correct. Nice. Um, we'll get well, into that was easy. Yeah, that was a pretty cut and dry one. <laughs> I asked him, I said, hey, I gave you like almost no heads up to this. I wanted to ask you. I said, do you ever find out if these guys are related? And he was like, oh, if I get to it, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try if I can or something. Basically, Rob and I have been really busy last week. So yeah, I, I kind of understood. He was like, you know, if I get to it, I will. I was like, cool. And then like 20 minutes later, I get basically... Nope, Von Braun. <laughs> These aren't even not even spelled the same. One guy's Dutch, one guy's German. It's like a whole different thing. I was like, cool. All right, moving on from that. But uh, for those of you who are space geeks like myself and uh, Maddie B here, in a, I, I was going to set up a Star Wars joke there, but I was going to I was going to fail you. I've I've leveled a few Star Wars jokes in here that were on point, so I need to like keep that brand going. But I was going to make like some stupid galaxy far away just, i don't know but 
probably in the next season or two, we're going to do a, a pretty good look at some NASA stories. So hang around. Werner Von Braun will make a return to the history things airwaves at some point. So um, now, Rob, yeah. I don't know if you heard, but we got actually a listener question. Um, somebody noticed that I said that I had the declaration on my wall. Jesus. And they wanted to know what I meant by that. So do you think, Matt, do you think it's a good time to let everyone in on the secret now? Oh, sure. All right. So uh, do you remember that time where I called you and said, hey, I'm down in D.C. I got in a little bit of trouble. I need to come by the fort. And you were like, why are you bringing the shovels and all that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I this like I had to stash something there for a while. Um, I found this thing. There was a map on the back. Yeah. And my buddy Nick called me. Right. And he was like, you're never going to believe this man. And then, like, you know, and so we came down, and he handed me this thing. It was rolled up, and I thought it was fake, but he's like, no, there's, it's, it's real. There's a map on the back. And you might have seen the movie. They made a movie about this. I, I'm uh, familiar. I was, I was, they turned me into a guy named Riley. <laughs> yeah. Basically, the whole character oh, is you're, based off of yeah, me now. Of course. Yeah. Of course. You can see the resemblance. But so, all right, so just to clarify for our listeners out there, I have the original Declaration of Independence on my wall. It, and it you, was buried at Fort Frederick next to Braddock's Gold. But correct. We dug it up. <laughs> Why are you, dude, there was no reason to give that one away. Now we got to move it. You know how much <laughs> was there? You found them both. Well done. God. So I was talking. How do you know to, if I didn't move it? I was talking because I know you didn't, sir. <laughs> so I was talking to our good friend Matt Callery the other day about where we park our yachts, and I was like, God, you know. <laughs> no, for real, we we that actually did come up. I've got a great audio clip of this. It's like if you didn't know better and you you thought we were like serious, it's like these two guys are really rich. <laughs> he made some joke about like driving. He was like, he's like, I used to be really poor, and then like you know, but last year was actually really good, and so we're doing better. And he's like, so now I have a yacht, and I was like, dude, me too. I was like, where do you park yours? And it like five minute conversation about decadence that we don't actually live for. So <laughs> I don't actually have the declaration on my wall. If you're Harvey Keitel and you work for the FBI. Uh, please don't come to my house and kick it down, but I do when there's a map on the back. I'll share it with everybody. Um, all right, so let's move the story on to like the <laughs> yes, part let, I... let's. God damn it, Matt. <laughs> let's move the story on to uh, a more serious topic, The sort of the continuation that I really wanted to get into. So we took it through sort of the the 40 years post the American Civil War, where the fort goes from being a ruin to like being a real forgotten kind of ruin. Um the, the Williams family still lives there. So it's like the land around it isn't forgotten as a whole. There's still a family having an entire existence there, but the fort as a military function is just not. Yeah. Um, the 19th century rolls into the 20th century, the long century, right? Things like the First World War kick off shortly after the Williams family lets go of the property, right? So Matt and I are huge geeks with that topic. So, you know... I'm going to venture out on a limb and say that the First World War did not make its fingerprints to the Fort Frederick area. Now you've now well, maybe you've, that's now a general question because I'm sure back, men serve. Now no 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 because now you've backloaded that question. Oh, so Fort Frederick? No, Fort Frederick State Park, the property that we own. No, but Clear Spring, Maryland, are sort of you know one of the two towns that claims Fort Frederick had a. World War One artillery proving ground and camp. Oh, so it had been pretty loud out there for um, a while. where they were um, ch- testing. Um, you'll have to to give me the French seventy five seventy fives. Yes, they were test firing the French seventy fives. Fantastic piece of artillery. Um, I, I'm still not a hundred percent 
on exactly the location. Apparently, some of the remnants still remain, but somewhere I think might be behind like Clear Spring High School. Like basically, they were shooting into the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a full blown World War One like encampment in That's Clear awesome. Spring. See, Pat, um, you bring Rob on. And you, you try learn. to make a joke, That's and the he point. is going to bring the thunder. That's the whole point of doing this show. <laughs> and, um, and I haven't, and I, I need to probably get in touch with the Clear Spring Historical Society because to me it's just an interesting little little side note. I mean, sure. I'm not a big World War One guy per se, but it's a neat story, and World War One is of interest. But because I don't know a ton about it, I've just sure. read a little bit and know it was there. Because once upon a time, I had a guy approach me and said, "I want to do a World War One event at Fort Frederick," and I kind of laughed at him. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, "Can you can you find me some documentation that's going to make it relevant to our story?" And I'm like, "You know, now we could make that stretch a little bit. That's cool because it is relevant. Besides just guys serving, it is relevant that there was a World War One U.S. Army presence, like right near there. Yeah, like within eight miles." I love when you get to like think about one historical location in one context and then somebody can just, you know, blow it up by making you realize that something entirely unrelated happened in the same place. Like my favorite example of this, I've said this before on the air, is Camp Colt Pickett's Charge. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, yeah, absolutely. I love that you go there and everything is geared towards the twelve to seventeen thousand men. I think it's twelve in reality, but Everybody throws out these numbers. Famously, 15,000, you know, it's the number. Whatever. The guys in the Pickett, Pettigrew, Trimble Assault, Longstreet's Assault, Pickett's Charge, that go across the mile of open ground, that's all we get. That's all we get. Same exact piece of ground, World War One tank camp. Eisenhower's in command. I think Patton's there for mm-hmm. a while. Like, yes. like some huge names in American military history are there. To the point where I think the majority of the battlefield relics that are pulled out of the ground there, legally and illegally are actually like First World War debris. I think they're like pieces of tanks, screws, things like that. So you don't think about that because there's almost, I think there's not even almost, I don't think there's any signage for Camp Colt out there. There's, there, there is. Really? So the one thing that that's bizarre and and I I can't exactly describe it, but basically if you're headed out uh, the Emmitsburg Pike from like the Steinware, you know, back to the old visitor center entrance, Mm. Just past that little ways is this bizarre looking like white pine tree that is so out of place. Yeah. And right in front of it is a little tiny marker that says like Camp Colt, President Eisenhower, 1918. And then across the road, I think there's now a wayside like visit Gettysburg or something thing that discusses it. And next to one about like the reunion, mm, the 38 okay. reunion or something. Wow. Um, 38. Yeah, it sounds right. Yeah. That's so, not, that's so Eisenhower's. For the, for the 75th, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a thing there back when the old uh, where the old home sweet home hotel right. used to sit. Dude, it's so <laughs> trippy to watch that video of Roosevelt talking to Civil War soldiers. Yeah. The blue and the gray. That's where that's how Eisenhower sort of comes to fall in love with the Gettysburg area, right? He's up there at Camp, Camp Colt. Colt. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like Camp Colt is yep. why he's got that farmstead up there now. You know, there's an aerial bombing range on the Pickett's Charge Field, too. What? They chalked out the outline of a battleship and tested dropping uh, aerial bombs on it. Was this part of Billy Mitchell's program? I don't know if it was actually Billy Mitchell in charge of that, but it was there uh, post-World War One because one of my colleagues uh, in Park Service was the archaeologist there. And they came across what they thought was unexploded ordnance, but it was dummy bombs. Dummy bombs, yeah, nice. that's cool. You know, we're yeah. getting into Billy Mitchell in quarter one. Hell yeah, we Hummers. are, dude. We're super excited. So we're going down to the graveyard of the Atlantic, and we're going to talk about all sorts of random sh- pirates, Titanic, 
Civil War, Revolution, uh, Hotel de Afrique, Billy Mitchell, World War Two, dude. It's too much. Sounds like fun. It's too much. You're not invited. Well, that's okay. Jeez. I'll still listen. Yeah. Thank you. No, we appreciate only it. Because no, I like, you can come and hang Only out. because I like Matt. Because you've offended me now. <laughs> no, <laughs> I actually have a gift for you upstairs before we go. Remind me that uh, the other day, because, you know, we like we talked baseball, and I was getting ready to rub it in your face that the Yankees won, like, 11 games, but the Orioles lost 19, and it reminded me I have a gift for you. So, Hey, do you know who's got the best record in baseball since August 25th? The Baltimore Orioles. That's yesterday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what did everybody else lose? Or? No, I mean okay. they're tied with some other teams. Got it. But <laughs> okay, the we are a history show. The Orioles were two games away from tying a historic record of consecutive losses that they themselves set oh. in 1988. Yeah, Whoops. they opened yeah. the season out 0 and 21 that year. That's correct. You must have loved that. I I didn't follow baseball when I was eight. What? I played t-ball. I'd like Is this America? Did we just suddenly forget what country we're living in? God damn it. This is America. I didn't I honestly didn't discover baseball Did, until like 1990. Didn't we cue Ronald Reagan? The that last wasn't too bad though. If if you just called out 88 and yeah. he got into it 2 years later, that's yeah. not too bad. Yeah, but yeah. That's Bush era baseball. In, I'm talking about Reagan era baseball. Jeez. I was in like 5th grade when I I like really discovered like baseball like baseball cards and supporting a baseball team also historical we could do a whole show on baseball cards but yeah God. tops baseball cards no more is that true i just heard that on like espn radio wow God, that's sad yeah crazy end of an era man we've gone down some rabbit holes that's tonight. Okay. this has been fun this is gonna be an interesting one to edit that's yeah, all right so so getting back on track because i can see my co-host head spinning around like reagan from the exorcist here um moving into the 20th century we have world war one um, there's obviously a, a neighborly connection with the military presence at Clear Spring, things like that. Does the fort have any direct connection? No. No. So no. nothing there. So moving into what becomes a depression, right? We have the 20s and 30s. We have the roaring 20s. Things are great. Any, just going to ask, any sort of like nefarious moonshine sort of connections? Because I know that people th- equate that with the Deep South mostly because that's where it was mostly present. Or in the Midwest. In the, in the Midwest. And NASCAR comes out of that and all that dirt 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 made its return. Um, but does, you know, that's kind of a backward area now. Like, back then, it was probably even more. Like, you, do you know of any sort of stuff like that? Fun moonshine? That would be a fun story to talk about, but no, no. I don't know of any. I'm sure there was some shine going on up in the hills around. Oh, I have no but, doubt. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the park becomes a park in 1922, so it, it it's being protected. There's somebody living on site pretty, pretty early. Right. Um, so, I, you know, it was only maybe 200 acres at the time, so I'm sure they would have seen some smoke from a still. <laughs> so what is it? So when it's a park site in 1922, like, do they immediately start to rebuild things, or they, did they just inherit kind of a derelict site, and they're just like, hey, welcome? Well, let's roll it back even further, Rob, because I recall from the first time we had you in, you actually mentioned that the state of Maryland was looking at developing a site there as early as the Civil War. That's correct. Oh, Yeah. So what was that, 62, you said? Yeah, so 62, literally in the middle of the Maryland campaign, like in September. Wow. Like, like I even want to think, again, I haven't looked at these, but I want to think it's literally like the day of like South Mountain or the day of the Battle of Antietam. They are like debating, creating a subcommittee to, to look at the potential of using Fort Frederick as a as either has you know as preserving Fort Frederick. Imagine the Maryland State Legislature in Frederick, and they're like, "Anybody have anything to talk about of relevance?" And like, you can hear the cannons going off, and like, <laughs> people are like, 
Well, Silent. They, were, they weren't in Frederick by that point. But no, yeah. weren't they there from April to September of six? Oh, it's sixty-two. 61. Yeah, you're right. That was sixty-one. Right. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. all right. So, in Annapolis, they wouldn't have heard shit. Just no. to be clear. <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. No, 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 no. But so, no. Can you imagine the state legislature though, knowing that you have a Confederate army in your state? There's this huge battle, like, and all these things are happening. And it's like, anybody got anything to say to talk about? It's like, I want to make a f- park. Yeah, it's like, all right, yeah, let's go with that one. Let's go with that. That's super important. No, nothing else is happening in the state right now. Lincoln and Hicks are like, what? Yeah. It's all right. So it doesn't go anywhere. They oh, talk sure. about it. Then 1882, um, the state looks at it again. And this okay. time they want to buy the fort to create their National Guard encampment site. I think that came, you touched on that too. Okay. So so that was kind of the next one. Uh Sometime between the 1880s and 1900, the Fort Frederick Protective Society is formed, which is a bunch of folks that want to try to preserve the site for its history. Okay. Um, during the, you know, like the 1870s and whatnot, there are definitely some, some sort of like pageants and speeches and stuff given in the ruins of the old Fort Patriotic the stuff. Willi- the Williams family cool with all this? Yeah, yeah. Everything that I've read talks about how he was trying to preserve the fort, mm-hmm. although he does a lot of damage to the fort. Well, as that as preservation did at that time. Yeah, <laughs> and and it was a working farm. Right. And and the walls of the fort were being used as a farmyard. Right. I mean he had orchards in there and all kinds of stuff. So but he seems pretty cool with with trying to help tell the story or or keep it alive. Um so let's see. So 1911, uh, the Williamses sell the property, but uh, the state is still sort of in and out of the, 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 the process of getting it. Hmm. One of the problems that Maryland has is that they have no, there's no state parks. There's no state park service. There's no mechanism really for them to, to do um, outdoor recreation and preservation. It just, it's just not a thing. So finally, 1922, when the state does buy the property, they buy it through the State Board of Forestry, which is part of the University of Maryland. It's basically part of the Extension Service, more or less. And they buy it to create a experimental forest. Ah, yes, yes. You'd mentioned that you have some weird ones out there to this day. Yes, yes. Interesting. You will find uh, some like loblolly pine and cypress and some weird western... Uh, cedar trees and 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 whatnot that, that are non-native to Maryland, and so that's how it got started. With we, that in mind, when does Maryland State Parks begin as an organization? Technically, we celebrated our hundredth anniversary in what two thousand and three. They okay. they but but as a our patch has changed so many times. <laughs> it's kind of like. Our patch, in a way, is kind of like a National Guard unit today claiming lineage to the 1600s. I oh, see. Yeah. They can. Mm-hmm. You can, but you got to go gotta around a little bit. There's some, some, like, unit that... Hoops to jump through. Yeah. There's some unit that, like, from like tries to connect the Stonewall Brigade or regiment to, like, a D-Day unit, like the 4th the, Division. Well, the 29th, 29th Infantry Division, division yeah. the 100 and something infantry. I've forgotten which it is, but yeah, no, they, and, and they're, they're national guard unit. And those, some of those national guard units claim that they went back all the way to the Stoneman brigade. I think there's a little bit of a break in there, but, but yeah, like that's my entire thing is like, at one point you weren't in the American military structure. So how, 
That's not for our debate tonight. The United States military accepts that as part of the part of their story for these National Guard units. That's okay. The end. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming out. No. Dun, so, dun, 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 dun. so they so they start planting trees there on site, and they're working with the Daughters of the American Revolution to do this. Mm. So those are some of the first sort of preservation efforts. Um, early 1930s, uh, the DAR again planting trees. They restore the forts well. Um, oh, okay. And I think 1931. So those are some of the earliest things. So there's a there's a park warden or park ranger, whatever they were calling him at the time, living on site, um, probably in what was Nathan Williams' house um, at the time, or had been Nathan Williams' home. Is his structure, is his home still standing? No. No. So, no. So all the structures, aside from the stone walls of the fort, are all civilian Conservation Corps era buildings? Correct. Okay, we'll get there. Besides the more recent ones. <laughs> yeah. So, so 1931, they come and do that. They do a bunch of other little pageants and ceremonies and things, the DAR. But 1934, during the uh, Great Depression, uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, sends a uh, company of enrollees to Fort Frederick, and they are known as SP Number 1. So State Park Number 1, they're the first project, state park project anyways, in, in Maryland um, in 1934. Uh, the company is 1353. They'd been around for a while. They had been up in a place called Cato, Pennsylvania previously, and they more or less moved down to Fort Frederick Lock, Stock, and Barrel in the spring of 1934. What is the Civilian Conservation Corps? So for our listeners out there who have no clue what we're yeah. about to talk about. So the Civilian Conservation Corps, officially known as, what is it, the Emergency Conservation Work, CCC kind of comes in later, is a works project by part of the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt and where they would take young men from about 18 to 25 who were unmarried and give them a job working in conservation. They would do things like build parks. They would build roads. They were also involved some in some rural electrification. They were involved in uh, reforestation. They were involved in um, Oh, my goodness. I can't think of what you want to call it. Uh, uh, Not irrigation. Well, some irrigation projects, too. But um, doing, like, uh, land reclamation, I guess, or or, or teaching farmers how to uh, do their fields better. The the, the word is totally I mean, they were involved in a multitude of projects. Yeah. I mean, these are all public works projects. All public works projects. Um, They built some roads. I mean, now, there are other... There are other parts of the alphabet soup, as it was kind of known, of all the other organizations that did a lot of this other stuff. Theirs primarily, primarily was in conservation work. So, again, okay. planting trees, building parks, um, working on, um, you know, they trails and whatnot. Trails. They, they did a lot of places like um, drain swamps to make arable land, to get rid of mosquitoes, stuff oh. like that. They're still around? <laughs> You really don't like mosquitoes. No, I hate mosquitoes. Uh, yeah, Which is the, fair. The problem is, is that that some of their practices have caused other issues. Right. Um, a lot of the a lot of the some of the issues we have with a lot of non-native species of trees and plants and stuff were done because they grow quickly to help reclaim the soil and help stop things like the dust bowl from happening, where there was nothing holding the dirt down. Right. So there's a lot of stuff we have today that 
worked great for what they needed, but nobody kept a handle on it. Right. Sure. So, so they're doing all kinds of stuff, um, but again, primarily related to outdoors, recreation, uh, and forestry work. Did the CCC bring in kudzu? I believe that that may have been one of the things I was shocked at, at the stuff that they were using because I'm pretty sure because kudzu grows fast. Yeah, it does. I think that's one <laughs> of the things that they were using. Um, not everywhere, but yeah, sure. they used that. I'm pretty sure like um, Atlantis trees mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I think like honeysuckle. Oh, man, they I, really were I, playing I with some interesting... Some, yeah, so a lot of a lot of those things come come in, and they're being used basically to help help save the soil um, and keep it keep it there. So when so when Fort Frederick basically gets greenlit to become a CCC project, like how is Fort Frederick chosen? Is it chosen because it's a site they own and they've been doing nothing with, and they're like, we might as well do it now. So the the CCC, of course, is managed ultimately <coughs> by the United States. Department of the Army. They kind of run the, the setup. They run the camps. They uniform the guys. So it looks like it's a paramilitary organization in, in, in the very loosest of senses. One, because they wear Army uniforms, and two, because they have to salute the flag every morning. Sure. But other than that, it's a bunch of teenage boys at, at a labor summer camp. Yeah. And please don't shoot me for that, because that, that it, it was a lot of hard work. But that's kind of what they did. It's a bunch of kids. They got them out of the cities. They got them out of their doldrums. A lot of these guys have never, some of them talk about they had never smelled fresh air before, literally, because mm-hmm. they had lived in New York or someplace that was full of smog and whatnot. They actually struggled to breathe. Hmm. You know, like, what, what is this? So, so they picked Fort Frederick when, they, when they're looking at projects in, in Maryland. Yeah, it was easy because they go to the state board of forestry um, I guess it was still the Board of Forestry at that point, but they're going to these kind of the states and saying, what do you got? And they're like, well, we've got this property. So any place that Maryland had already started developing as a state park was used, and then other other properties were developed, and then some weren't developed that the CCC even started on. Um, so there is a ton of projects in Maryland, but Fort Frederick ends up being the first one that they they do in terms of state parks. Um, so they come out and like I said, the spring of 1934, about a hundred guys, they, they end up building barracks on site. Um, world war one style U S barracks. I was going to say, so a couple of things. One, obviously the first, first <clears throat> goal when they arrive is obviously to set up their own infrastructure. They're not immediately going to work on the fort. No, right? no. Although they will do it pretty quickly because the very, at very beginning, they put up tents, right? So they live in a tent city, um, and as you've been to the, both been to the fort, basically where the what we call the CCC Museum cabin is, right outside of the gate. That's where the tent camp was. Mm. So right outside of the fort gate was where they set that up. Then down below where the other CCC structures are to the west of the fort is where they build the permanent camp. And I want to think the first thing they built is actually like the hospital. They, they, they had a hospital. They had a recreation hall. They had the barracks. They had officers' quarters. They had storehouses. They had a quite a little little complex. How there. many of those structures are still standing? One. Which one is it? It is a. Um, we believe it was a workshop building. It's a small building, maybe twenty by forty length and width. But yeah, it's a little. Uh, Little tar paper, zebra shack, white white wooden strips on it. But yeah, so it was apparently a workshop building. Um, 
we're still not 100% sure what it was, but if you look at the, um, the floor, you can clearly see that there was a lot of work going on in that building mm-hmm. where people were using drills and just drilling right into the floorboards. and Not caring about <laughs> it at all. Somebody dropped a hot iron or it heated up a hammer by accident and dropped it on the ground. You can see the whole outline of the, of the, of the hammer or the uh, soldering iron. I'm not sure which it is because of the way it's laying. There's a lot of that stuff. Plus, it had a bunch of electrical outlets in it, which was kind of unusual for a lot of those buildings, like in kind of the back corner. So I think there was some electrical, you know, power tools. Very primitive, but power sure. tools going on in there. Interesting. The, as- the aesthetic of it was also something that you mentioned, right? World War One style barracks. Like, they're uniformed, likely, in a lot of World War One surplus-style stuff, right? Yes, Don't correct. they wear the campaign hat? Like the the famous like flat hat that Rangers often wear. I was gonna say Park Service's first uniforms and ni- Park Service starts nineteen sixteen and yeah. the first Rangers are kitted out by U.S. Army essentially surplus Army uniforms. Yeah. So the do you guys have to wear the putties. They do, they weren't wearing putties. Uh, putties were an overseas thing for the most part. They would have been. Would you wear in the gaiters? Were the green and grays wearing gaiters once upon a time? I think they were at the beginning. Yeah, you should bring it back. Probably a lot of them, though, were wearing the, the cavalry boots. Right. True. I think the, the Patton boots or whatever exactly. we call them because they were the, basically the, the, they were wearing the World War I style breeches with the long boots. Right. Now, the Cs were not wearing, I'll never say never and always because there might be a picture out there of someone wearing putties, <laughs> but there are definitely images of them wearing the 1917 or 1936, whatever they are. Uh, U.S. Gators. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't look at them close to the exact, but that style. Right. Um, so the, the initial uniforms of the guys who are going to be at Fort Frederick are World War One U.S. shirts, World War One 1917 trousers, World War One trench boots or victory boots or whatever. They're all very similar. Um, the World War One um, uh, Mackinac coats. Were they the, giving these guys, like, tunics? That's what I was going to say. Like, were they so wearing the high-collar coats and everything, too? You could really go, well, this could be a whole other rabbit hole. Yes. In some <laughs> cases, tunics were issued, but usually they were modified. So the one thing that the, because the CCC being a civilian organization, they took off all the military buttons and stuff. Sure. But, like, same cut and high-collar? Yeah, I've seen some where they literally modified them, like made them an open collar and did some things or took off some pockets, made them look a little bit different. But yes, there are definitely some, what, those 1917-ish tunics, you know, I'm sure probably some others snuck in there, whatever the quartermaster had. Um, so that's happened, and they're wearing a lot of the, of course, they're, you know, most people are more familiar with the, the CCC wearing the blue denim outfit. Yeah, exactly. They're wearing the, what is it, like the 1919 pattern uh, blue dungarees, a nineteen nineteen pattern pullover, which is still very similar to what they were wearing in in World War One. Um, the what we know as the Daisy May, the floppy the floppy hat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, like I said, other parts of that that the the green, you know, the olive drab World War One, you from the wool shirt, or maybe they're wearing the wool trousers with a mix of the denims. So yeah, it's they're uniformed by the by the War Department. And sometimes you're going to find other weirdnesses because the local quartermaster wouldn't have. So he would literally go to the local store or call Sears and Roebuck or whatever. So you're going to also find some weird civilian-y stuff that looks similar. But primarily, yeah, they're wearing the uniform of they're wearing the Pershing ties with their yeah. as their dress uniform. So yeah, they now look. Now that's interesting. I didn't realize there was a dress uniform as well. Yeah, it, and it's it's a mix. It's kind of like it's kind of like your your. I'm sure with your your green and grays, you can kind of mix and match certain parts. 
little bit. It's supposed to be like a seasonal thing. Yeah. Like but, your summer wear and, and yeah. winter. So they could mix and match with their work clothes. Okay. Some of their items would be considered dress. But basically the dress uniform early on is the overseas cap, the the garrison cap, other inappropriate names, cap, whatever sure. you want to call it, <laughs> um, would have been their dress cap. They would have worn the World War One pullover shirt, the 1917 wool trousers. They might have polished up a pair of boots. Okay. Their belt and then their their Pershing tie. That was kind of their 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 dress. They're walking out. Their whatever they're going to wear for formation. Um, but they could also wear like those trousers or that shirt as part of their work wear. But typically, when it was colder, you know, whatever. It's like, oh, I need an extra layer. Yeah, another layer kind of thing. Um, and then again, they had like the Mackinac, the short Mackinac um, wool coats. Mm, I don't know about any. Maybe some of the regular overcoats, but but the Mackinac seems to be pretty pretty popular. That they would wear sort of an overgarment in cold weather with their with their dress uniform. Now later the seas get into their more own kind of dress uniform, but that's actually after Fort Frederick goes away. So I don't spend too much time in the spruce green era. <laughs> uh, gotcha. But it's it's the spruce green stuff's pretty cool too. So back to the original point. So that's overseen by the Army, but then you have groups like the U.S. Forest Service and the United States Department of Interior National Park Service that are sort of working projects out. So Fort Frederick, although it is state park number one, is overseen by the National Park Service. Oh, now that's interesting. I didn't in, know that. In, in coordination with the, with the Maryland, I guess we're the Forest Service by then. Um, because they actually have forest rangers and they have uniforms, some, some uniforms and whatnot. Um, so yeah, it's a National Park Service project. Hmm. Uh, the problem is, is that one of the biggest problems with the what happens at Fort Frederick is, is the enrollees get there, they set up the camp, but apparently the National Park Service doesn't get their archaeologists and people there soon enough. Uh, I think it's Dr. Charles Porter. Um, yeah, he doesn't get there soon enough. So you've got basically. Young guys being and, and and also the camps are run by army officers, so um, guys who are likely veterans of the Great yes. War. So the guy that that's running Fort Frederick is um, Captain uh, Harry. I think it's Carger is how it's pronounced, and he is a reserve army officer, uh, artillery. He's definitely without me going and looking up his MOU because I don't I don't know his whole service record. He definitely looks like a World War One vet. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then he's got some young whippersnapper lieutenants that are under him um, who probably haven't seen. They're probably like ROTC guys that you know, just got their, their butter bars, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but he Carger's definitely, and apparently they send him to certain camps in his time to deal with unruly camps to get them whipped into shape. Oh, yeah. So, so he Did he visit Fort Frederick? No, he's the commander. <laughs> he's the commander the whole time. Oh, okay. Uh, he traveled from Pennsylvania with these guys because they're that mud. They're knuckleheads. <laughs> I'm going with. He's Mulcahy from Glory. I'm going with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's there, and he's highly respected too. So you've got these army officers. You have these civilian kids. You have these civilian-y park ranger, for, well, forest rangers, not really park rangers. They don't know what park rangers really are at this point. Hmm. They're forest rangers, forest wardens, kind of running it. And then there's some other local folks who get involved. But but again, run by the Army, and then with the conjunction with the National Park Service and the Maryland Forest Service. But archaeologist isn't there. Army officer, lots of guys that need something to do. 
Well, we know that there were buildings inside of this fort. We should find them. Oh, good. Fantastic. So he puts the boys to work. Oh, yeah. Just digging. Digging trenches. Ah. I mean, hey, the army's really good at it at that point. They're I mean, digging. we're not talking about the army. The army guys in charge are really good at it at this Yeah, point. so they're digging, like, basically two-foot trenches throughout the fort. And they are looking for the structures in the fort. So they're looking for foundations, bricks, right. things like that. Guess what they're not looking for or cataloging? Wood. All the other random stuff they're All finding. All the other artifacts. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. The archaeologist comes in here and is like, you've contaminated my dig site! And he has a heart attack and dies right on site. He doesn't <laughs> have a heart attack and die, but I'm sure he... Did all the other stuff. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> so he shows up, and he does the next best thing he can do. He literally draws a map of the fort grounds, puts a grid on it, and he interviews every enrollee that dug stuff up. Because they had, and in some cases, they were keeping some of the stuff, but they're just kind of thrown in a box. You think right. he came in like an ocean inspector and was like, shut it down, shut it down, <laughs> shovels down, everyone. <laughs> some, the Sergeant Mulcahy guy comes over and he's like, what are you doing here? And he's just, the, the archaeologist freaks out. It's like, this is my, he pulls his badge out because he's a cop suddenly. Says this is my dig site. Oh, I figured he was going to get us bullwhip. No, no, uh, that's not, Indiana Jones comes in later. Oh, that's okay. the whole. That's the action scene. Next so, scene. So he makes this map and literally interviews all the guys. And actually, we have the map to this day of, of him trying to replot where all the stuff was found. What kind of stuff were they finding? Unfortunately, most of the best artifacts that we have at Fort Frederick came from the CCC digs. <laughs> wow. So it's all out of context. Sure. Now some of it's easy. Because you can go, this is 18th century. Now, the problem is it's used in two conflicts during the 18th century. So some of it you could go, was this French and Indian War? Is this... Um, 1750s, 1770s. Right. And then there's some Civil War stuff that's found. So that makes that easier. Sure. But um, so that that's an issue. But yeah, he does his darndest to try to, to fix the problem. And then, of course, how much of it did walk away? Uh, yeah. A I'm, lot. You've got all these kids probably grabbing souvenirs. Oh, hey, I found a coin. Hey, I found a... a Correct. piece of a pipe or something. But, yeah. yeah, the majority of our really good stuff came from these digs. And unfortunately, guess what? In the digs since then, guess where they found most of the good stuff? In the midden piles from the digs? Correct. They found in the backfill from the digs from the 30s. <laughs> um, so a lot of archaeologists, even though we would love to do a 100%, because there's never been a 100% dig done of, of Fort Frederick. Hmm. We would love to have a 100% dig done, but for the most part, a lot of archaeologists are like, yeah, no, <laughs> we don't want to touch it. Because it's so contaminated. Sure. Um, so they do that. They, they, they dig up the fort. They do some digging outside, too. Um, one of the things that they do that, that, that really bothers me today, they tear a house down. The house is 99.9% sure is Nathan Williams' house because it's in the pictures when they first get there, and then it's gone, and there's pictures of them tearing down a building. Pictures of them tearing down said building. There is a 18th century structure underneath of the 19th century structure. Ah, there is a beautiful two-story like log cabin structure. Why did they tear it down? So that they could build new cool park facilities. 
<laughs> Sounds like a government operation already. Yeah. So what's the first like plan? So they get there, they set up all their infrastructure. They are messing up an archaeologist dig site by digging these you know silly trenches for foundation searches. Like, what's the actual first plan of conservation restoration? Like, we're going to rebuild a wall. We're going to like what's the so, first actual plan? So, th- and it's interesting how plans were written in the '30s versus today. Yeah, everybody's spoken that way. Never going to get me kind of accent. You see, Kappa? Is that what you mean? No, no, oh. no, no, no. What I mean is, is basically it's like Sorry. A, it's like almost like a two-page document. This is what we're going to do. Mm. Um, Wait, not a seventy-page battle plan report that we do now? No. So they wanted to for the for the fort itself, restore, rebuild the walls where necessary. Find find the 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 foundations of any structures, rebuild said structures. Also rebuild the defenses. Like they wanted to do a total reconstruction or, or, or restoration of the fort. What was the condition the fort was in when they found it? So when the CCC gets there, the best way to explain it is to this day, 70% of the wall that's standing is still from the 1750s. So about 30% of the wall is in ruin or down completely. Uh, when Nathan Williams was there, he built a barn out of the Northwest Bastion, so completely dismantled the Northwest Bastion. There's a, a big gap in the wall that was put there for some reason by apparently somebody trying to steal stuff from the fort or ease of access for a wagon. I'm not sure. Um, there's some corners that are down pretty good. Um, but it's 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 at least 70% original. And also, if you look at images of, of what they did before and then you look at the work today there were places where preservationists today would have done it differently. So let's say the tip of the bastion was missing. Today, we would have probably found a way to just repair what, put back what was there. You know, okay, this is what's here in situ. Now let's just try to fill it out. No, they took out the whole corner and rebuilt it. Ah. So when you look at the walls today, there's places where there was actually, before they came, more wall than it appears today because when they came in, they used Portland concrete, of course, which was not a good idea, but it's been a great thing for us because everywhere they restored the wall, there's gray Portland concrete. So you can see it where everywhere else there still was the original wall. It's a lighter color mortar. Now, mind you over the history, we've, we've redone the walls a couple of times, but we've kept that so that you can see the original wall that was always been there versus what was done. But there's some places where the seas, literally have a photograph of, of them standing in front of it before they did the work, and there's clearly more stone there than it looks like that they, you know, because they, they took it all down to where they found a firm surface and then rebuilt it versus, you know, today, like, you know, trying to recreate part of the log. You know, the log's there, and we're going to try to rebuild it with putty and whatnot. Right. Yeah, where they would have just ripped that log out and... <laughs> what, about the, what about the structures inside the fort? Like completely gone, ruins yeah. of them left, anything? No, they found the foundations, but there is nothing left. I mean, basically the last of the wood inside of the fort supposedly is gone by the early 1850s. Like mm. there's like a guy saying that he remembered like 1851 or 1840 something going, I remember seeing the last of the gate posts and that was it. And then there's a report that like in 1850, 50, 51, the last, somebody, some guys from Baltimore came and took the last pieces of wood from Fort Frederick. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit, is that a one by six? <laughs> I can't believe somebody left that behind. Yeah, I, so yeah, so they, 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 they don't, 
there's not there's nothing there. So it's just a wall and ruin. There's trees growing in random places. There are still? trees growing in random places in the fort, and they of course they keep that because you know it's state forest. <laughs> um, also shade when you're working. Yeah, no, it's it, it, trust me. The the fact <laughs> the trees are gone, I'm glad. But at the same time, I'm going. Sometimes I wish there was a little more shade in this <laughs> yeah. this fort than we've got out here on the parade ground. Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially when some rangers say, you know, nice words, but lengthy words, you know, <laughs> after a long day of history and we're standing there saluting the flag. Can you, you know, the rangers there. Can you tell that one ranger to like, hurry up. It's hot. Yeah. You know, you'd think he was on a podcast or something. No, no. We don't invite <laughs> guys like that on our show. So, <laughs> Matt, I don't think, I think this is actually Rob. That's the ranger. I don't think. Oh, yeah. I, I Rob, figured, I forgot to mute that. I figured that out. Thank you, Pat. Hey, Rob, meant to tell you, buddy, it's hot out there. It is. It is. <laughs> Trust me, it was today. It was real hot today. Whew. Both of you guys uh, are the keepers of sites that have poor shade setups. That's true. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like I sweat ridiculously at both of the sites. Like You guys need to get on that. Talk, Matt, you talk to the feds. You get with Hogan over here. And let's get some shade, I'll right? get Larry on speed dial. Dude, me too. He's my BFF. Yeah. I know all the celebs. Larry, uh, Jim. Obviously, I'm talking about James Cameron. Jim's my good buddy. You know, things like that. And uh, what was the other one of mine who was a good friend of mine? Oh, I don't even know. Bill Seward. There ah. it is. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Bill. Old Bill. <laughs> First time I said that, Matt almost quit the show. <laughs> I, I may have quit, too, if I was your co-host. <laughs> Anyway, so, all right, so they find it in pretty much the same condition as the Civil War soldiers found it in, but slightly worse, right? Like, yeah, more ab- of the wall is down, but it's kind of the same setup. Absolutely, because in one of the big things with the more of the wall, besides the tops of the walls crumbling over the years, you know, the fact that now we've we've removed the barn, so there's this big gap where the northwest bastion should be. So, yeah, so they do that. They build... Um, the museum and park office building, which is right outside of the Fort Today's Civilian Conservation Corps Museum. They build the uh, Ranger's House, which is now our park store. And they build uh, basically a barnyard for the Ranger. I'm confused. Didn't he say there was only one CCC building left? You're talking about like five buildings that you guys are still using. Okay, well, see, I'm not a mathematician, meant, sir. I thought you meant CCC camp buildings. No, no, no. You meant CCC. I buildings. just meant like buildings that they erected on on oh, the site. Basically, everything at Fort Frederick was built by the CCC. That's I, what I was getting. It's at. easier for me to count the buildings that weren't. And it's <laughs> the fort. There's four outside <laughs> the, of our maintenance complex. It's the fort itself. Um. Yeah, so so no, so yeah, okay, uh, so yeah, sorry, I misunderstood the question. No, that's cool. So they built the ranger residence and then they basically built him a barnyard. And there's um, where a blacksmith shop is, was kind of the first maintenance shop, which mm-hmm. the seas used as a blacksmith shop to create a lot of the ironwork around the park. Uh, there's a barn and there was a carriage house or a garage, and all that was sort of fenced in. And the far and the ranger had some acreage to plant as a garden or a farm, and has their little farm. So all that's there across from the fort. Um, they build our picnic pavilion and their picnic area, the two bathhouses or bathrooms down in the picnic area. Um, all the roads in the park were built by the CCC. Um, their thumbprint is so, so large on our little facility. Um, there isn't much that they didn't, they didn't touch, you know, they're the only, like I said, the only structures are maintenance complex and our operational house is all new, and when I say new, like 
50 years old. Um, <laughs> and then our visitor center, they had nothing to do with that because that was built in the late 70s, early 80s. And then our bath, this bathhouse that's behind the all potty. our... Yeah, our, our potty, that our nice potty that's well, behind all the CCC buildings. I'm allowed to call it a potty. Yeah. Thanks. But we did get them to make it look like one of the CCC buildings, so it kind of blends in, looks sort of like a barn, brown, and all that stuff. So they those are like the only buildings besides the fort that they did not build. Hmm. So it's a huge thumbprint. I mean, you can see their their work every day, and you know what they did there was, was, was pretty impressive. And they also worked on, um, while they were there, some of them went up and rebuilt Washington Monument in Boonesboro. Ah. Washington Monument State Park was what they called a side, a side camp. So when they need this kind of like you guys, they would bust them up to, bust them up to Washington Monument. And they rebuilt Washington Monument and built the facilities there at Washington Monument State Park. Wasn't that in ruin during the Civil War? It was correct. Yep. Which yeah. is a signal station. It was a signal. That's station. That's why I asked because yeah. I vaguely remember they're reading an account and also seeing one of the really cool sketches of troops going up the mountain there. And I think they depicted and it's referenced in the correspondence I was reading that it is a ruin yeah. at that point. Yeah. So they they do. I, I they found, refer to it as a pile of rocks. Yeah. <laughs> they also build. Uh, I think I don't know if they actually build the the fire tower, but there's like a fire tower. I don't know if it's the one at Clear Spring or one in Pennsylvania just above it. But I know that if nothing else, they string the phone lines from from it, like eight miles of phone line. They build some roads outside of the park. Wow. And at one point, somebody for the CCC is mapping Fort Tonalaway State Park. And that's another two-page um, document. Hey, by the way, we're going to build a park here. That's what we're going to do, and it's two pages. And they, they map out this park and set tell, and there's a whole plan of what they're going to do. And basically the seas move on to another project, and it never gets done. So this map that they did and yeah that was like I'm trying to think they left by July of 37 they're officially gone by July of 37 they probably left before that because I think July is the big like sort of dedication but the camp 1353 moves on to Elk Neck State Park and build Elk Neck State Park hmm. so the CCC basically rebuilds the fort from ruin to its Basically, what you're looking at today. Yeah, other they than the did two the, barracks. Okay, that no. was going to be the question. Yeah, no. So, so that was going to be my next question. Then, so moving into the more modern era, where the CCC has moved on. When when did they move on? 1930s? 1937. 1937. So they're from 34 to 37. So during the Second World War. So just to tie it all the you know everything to a military sort of function, since that's in a way kind of what we do on the show here, even though we're the history things podcast. So if Matt and I want to talk about it and it's historical doesn't matter. We'll do it. But, you know, we kind of <laughs> function as military historians, so to tie it into that. So during the Second World War, any sort of connection that the fort has to that? I mean, even as just like a big storage depot, it's a huge logistical available space. Nope. It's it's preserved in the public domain. I mean, the, the closest thing we've got is that we know that, that a number of the enrollees from the CCC that were in our camp would go on to fight in World War II. And the, the sort of flip side of the CCC, even though it was a civilian conservation works project, it did give, it was sort of deep down inside rooted as a very basic recruiting, recruiting training facility for the war that was coming. Why do I need this rifle in like 1935? They're like, Timmy, don't ask questions. Don't ask questions. Now, Now they did not do any 
weapons stuff. There's you a crowd, no, Timmy? That's the there were no weapons involved in the CCC um, in any of its existence. But they did, like, especially as war got closer, a lot of the conservation projects were like, hey, let's restore this coastal fort that has been derelict since World War One." Mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, we should teach you guys how to do operate radios. That'll be really good. And Morse code and things like that. But the CCC and a lot of guys that I've read about who were veterans of World War II said the CCC gave them the experience to know what life was like in barracks. Life was like mm-hmm. with other guys from all over the country, eating in the chow hall, doing all those basic things. It didn't teach them how to be soldiers. But, but the it, things you don't think about when you think about soldiers, because when you think right. about soldiers, you think about the condition on the battlefield. Right. You don't think about the domestic condition where they're in barracks, where they're doing drill, and they're just existing where as they gotta, people. Yeah, right. live with it, other people. It, yeah. it, it taught a lot of these boys how to drive truck, mm-hmm. how to drive bulldozers, things like that. Now, most of their work was pick and shovel, but there was equipment operators, truck drivers, and, and, and whatnot. Again, I talked about the radio training. One of the jobs you could be in the CCC was basically a corpsman. You could be a medic. Hmm. So you could learn first aid skills. So there were a lot of little things. Guess what? You could be a cook. You could maybe be involved in the quartermaster department. So there's a lot of these logistical jobs within the military that easily translated from the CCC to the military and being used to working with people in the military. Like When it came to discipline, basically the discipline was... You act up, we kick you out. There's no, yeah. There's no military, to, but but the idea of getting called in in front of the the captain, you know, like mm. I'm mm-hmm. sure there was a lot of there was some of that stuff. So one of the other questions I'll have is um, with the CCC. Oh man, my brain just completely stopped. This is a good That's question. All right, I too. got one. Go for it. Was I only know a limited amount of, in regards to the CCC? Was it a segregated organization? That's complicated. Okay. Um, the simple answer is yes. Which but, doesn't surprise coming out of the era. But initially, particularly in the Northeast, and when I say Northeast, I mean like New England. Right. Not because some people consider us Maryland Northeast. No, we're Mid-Atlantic okay. all the way, baby. Dude, that's why we watch baseball on Masson. <laughs> I'm not even an Orioles fan. <laughs> Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. I was going to say, I don't even know. know what that means. <laughs> Up there, they got Nesson, North East Sports Network, or New England Sports that's, Network. That's it's the same company, that's, but it's... That's true. That okay. just proves to you <laughs> that they are not, that we are not the Northeast. So, in early on, in, in some of these more Northern organizations, there were some mixed, unset, non-segregated camps. Hmm. Uh, a lot of that will go away. Particularly in the South, they are segregated. And in, in Southern states, they are definitely segregated. So you would have you would have camps of African Americans and you would have camps of of everybody else, which basically would be, you know, anybody of, of European ancestry. Right. There were also some camps of American Indians out on on the reservations. Uh, they were a very small group, but they were there were um, camps in Puerto Rico um, or a camp. There was some some activity down there, and I want to think. Be Guam, somewhere else. There was some other, other territory. Small, yeah, mm-hmm. some small, um, and one of the other territories. So there are some some camps of different gender, uh, not genders, different ethnicities. Um, but typically, yeah, it's going to be segregated. Um, I know that there was a National Park Service camp at Yorktown, Virginia, that was a was an African American camp that oh. did a lot of the stuff down there. 
um, probably, I guess, the, the, the whole Colonial Parkway area. But, yeah, the southern, the southern states were very anti-desegregated camp, yeah. and they were very, in some cases, anti-even having African-American camps. I am shocked by what you are saying right now, Rob Ambrose. You're telling me that in the turn of the century South, they had a problem with um, integration. Mid twentieth century at this point. Sure. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, they did. Yes. Okay. To move away from the turn of the century, you're talking the beginnings of the mid twentieth century. You're telling me they had a problem. Yeah. With integ- I had. They did. Shocker. They and it and it was a very it was a very nimby problem. You know, not in my backyard. Sure. Literally, like, even the even the the white camps, a lot of places were not happy about having them because you're bringing in the bad element from the city. Sure. Right, the quote unquote bad element. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But but with the with the African American camps, they're typically going to be more rural than the white camps because people don't want them anywhere near their towns. Got it. Um, it was bad enough having the quote unquote white camps dancing with their with their daughters. Let oh, alone, yeah. you know, and, and there's issues in, in different places with, with these kind of things. Yeah, because they don't want Tommy from New York coming down here and dancing with the daughters. Well, and then, and then again, you know, at the whole idea of you've got these young guys from different places, so they're kind of exotic, doesn't matter, they look like you or not, in uniform, coming to your little, you know, um, your little community dance or whatever, coming in for the weekend visits, because they would literally open up the camps like in, like once a month and let the community come in and see what's going on, kind of an open house situation. But, yeah, it could cause problems. Um, I don't know of any in, in, say, the Fort Frederick camp being related, but uh, I do know that the CCC boys would walk down the Western Maryland Railroad, walk across the railroad bridge into Cherry Run, West Virginia, and get beer. That was their <laughs> their place to go to get beer in West Virginia. Yeah, so, they would, so they'd walk a couple of miles across an open trestle railroad bridge, active open trestle railroad bridge, to get to get beer. And then back with the beer in their system. (laughs) That's right. That's That's the more impressive one, the return trip. America. America. (laughs) So, all right, so I remembered my question. So is there an age limit? Like, these guys are being enrolled at at traditionally young ages, 17, 18, 19, 20, kind of... you know this, and let's say they're doing this in the early nineteen or like mid nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties. You know, thirties. Do they get kicked out if they're a certain age? Yeah. So you basically, first off, it's typically eighteen to twenty-five, and you had to be unmarried. Typically, um, you enlisted for a six-month enlistment. You could enlist up to four times, so you could be in the CCC oh. for two years. That was it. That was it. Um, and I'm sure there's probably an exception to the rule somewhere. Like, there's an exception that was actually, I think, a woman in the CCC. Really? Somewhere. You know, one of those weird... Snuck-in situations? No, not like... Didn't dress up like as a man, but I think... She, I, I can't remember the whole story, but I was looking at... Like, was, found the legal loophole and forced the issue? Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. Good for her. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, there were women around the camps because they had, like, secretaries and some of the teachers because they did do schooling. Sure. But... But yeah, so 18 to 25 typically, single typically. Married guys could be in under certain circumstances. Um, like maybe no kids to support, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, there's there were some oddballs. And here's the biggest oddball of the situation. They had what they called veteran camps. So guys who were young Great War veterans, like 17, 18 in the Great War, who were, are... Well, they don't even have to be young. 
there's really doesn't seem to be any oh, age. Oh, so instead of giving them the bonuses that show up later Her, in the bonus right. army issue, they'll give you they'll give them jobs. This is in actually the bonus army is before. Right. Is this it? this yeah. is Oh, dude, I got my yeah, dates Hoover, wrong. Right. Hoover's okay. bonus You're right. army. You're right. So the, these guys are more or less yeah, this is sort of like their their bonus. So hey, sorry, yeah. sorry about that bonus. You want some jobs? That's basically <laughs> Um, and I, we know we charged with cavalry and all yeah. there on the National Mall, yeah. but you Sorry want to jump? So no, that wasn't on the mall. That so was in, that's on the Anacostia Flats, bro. Well, they did on the mall, too. Did they? Yeah. Was there a bonus army? Was there a setup on the mall there? Yeah, yeah like right in front of the Capitol. Because the big one they talk about is the one in Anacostia. Well, I, th- I think that's the camp. That's where the one where Patton shows that's up. That's where they lived, but, they, but those guys get pushed off like right in... Sort of quote downtown DC because the Battle of Anacostia Flats in air quotes is the one where like Patton and MacArthur team up right, right? yeah it's and a, like go in and burn down the the yeah, Hoover City yeah. and like the yeah. Metropolitan Police are there and like that's the one where like people get like hurt I think yeah. one person dies I think it's more than one yeah. is it I thought it was but only they, one person but they died definitely are all around I didn't know they were on the mall Anacostia yeah definitely yeah I mean you're, well, you're 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 right I knew they were on the mall just to be clear I didn't know that like the violence went down on the mall I, well that's they were driving them out so, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah unfortunately. So, so these veteran army guys or veteran um, conservation corps guys are, in some cases, apparently. Now, this is this is my understanding. Look, at other folks who are, are doing some research. Sounds like even there's some Spanish American War veterans. Wow, getting old. I, I'm I'm not saying that for certain, but I know some guys definitely doing living history, and that's their angle. Mm-hmm. And. Again, but it would it would stand to reason if they were some younger guys in 1898. They, no, I know. Yeah, that's, that's they'd that's be in neat. their what 40s, yeah, 50s. They they could still swing a swing an axe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the veteran camps, and this is where a lot of folks, particularly in the living history hobby, go wrong. Is these veteran guys? These are your shell shock dudes. Yeah, they're not uh, doing great. Yeah, because they, they don't get... have jobs. These are your guys who are drinking. Yeah, they're, shell shock, they're in hard PTSD. Times. So you know, because people are like, "Oh, well, they were they're veterans, so they're going to be all spit and polish." And these are guys that are more like "fu army." These guys mm-hmm. are f-ed up. Yeah, they're like, no. So, so yeah. So some guys try to portray it as like they want all the little stripes and all the bells and whistles and stuff. And it's like, I I I don't know if that's the case. Right. These are the hard luck guys, and that's yeah. why they're here because they couldn't make it hold down a job anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. yeah. So. So yeah, so that's but so they're the veteran camps. So you could have older folks um, in the CCC, but in specific camps, and there's not a ton of them. But those have the most, from what I understand, some of the most problems. Sure. Wow. Um, and one of those camps I just read about the other day was in the Florida Keys. When I don't remember the name of the hurricane, came like thirty six, thirty seven, maybe something, and basically. Wiped them out. Because there was literally like one train track to get there and the train got held up because of other stuff to get them out and pretty much a whole bunch of them got killed. Oh, wow. Yeah, so so that just was kind of an interesting interesting story I read the other day. The CCC history is fascinating. So moving on from them, because they let go of the fort and... The fort then just kind of exists. What kind of condition do they exist in? Because what I want to do is start to kind of bring it to the the era in which you are running 
the the Fort story. So what happens between them leaving and sort of when Rob Ambrose comes into the picture? Governor Ambrose. Yes, sorry, God, I forgot. I'm so sorry, Governor. (laughs) So after the seas leave and they they rededicate the fort in 37, it doesn't seem like a lot happens until 1956. And And that's not not you. And that's not me. I'm not that old. (laughs) Uh, 1956 is the bicentennial of... Fort Frederick. Fort Frederick. So they have a big, like, week-long pageant. And one of the big things I think, and I kind of chuckle to myself, is they do this whole pageant about the UN, about the United Nations. Oh, that's interesting. Completely related. Well, I mean, not related, but, but think about it. Coming <laughs> out of World War II, yeah. the United Nations, it's just, it, it just an interesting. Um, there was a guy portraying General Ulysses S. Grant. I've seen a photograph. Totally related. Totally. They Does he look the part? Not bad okay, for a 1950s well. Civil War costume, which okay. was probably an original 1880s general's uniform, <laughs> right? <laughs> and some Union soldiers with him that look, yeah, look like extras in like um, Red Badge of Courage or something. Okay. okay, I know that somebody did a live fire with a Gatling gun in the fort. Oh my! Shooting it at railroad ties or something. Yeah, it was a whole so the, the whole big shindig for what like a, a week. Show. Yeah, so they were really big on it. Doing that, and um, you know, you get your commemorative ashtray or plate. Oh man, uh, did we miss out on that? Yeah, you did. Apparently, we did. God, I could sh- use a commemorative ashtray and plate right now. Yeah, who couldn't? <laughs> so then it then kind of again sort of lulls a little bit. Nineteen sixty six, I think, is the year the first Maryland American Revolutionary War reenactment group starts coming to Fort Frederick, hmm. and that basically is the beginning of the Living History Program on a consistent basis anyways at Fort Frederick. There's some guys, that, some of the Civil War guys that were related to the fort, like did some stuff, but literally the first Maryland came like at least at least four times a year if it wasn't once a month during the summer and did a whole weekend of, of stuff. And people would come from miles around to see the first Maryland regiment do their thing. Uh, first Maryland is basically going, coming to the fort from the 60s through the end of the U.S. bicentennial, so in like 1983, when the first Maryland literally surrenders their colors to the governor. Hmm. They still exist today, but they did actually at least recreate surrender. I don't know, but they, that's something that they did. A lot of them basically got out. Sort of the unit sort of ceased to be for a while after the centennial bicentennial <laughs> was over. We've seen that in the hobby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they're involved with the fort. They're a lot of young movers and shakers in the history community back then. Um, one guy is, is big in our story is Ross Kimmel. He was one of the first state park. He was like the first state park historian and was big in helping us do a lot of the things that, that happened at the fort, but all the guy by the name of Bill Brown. And, and I'm sure there's others that I don't even know about, but guys, you've, you've might've seen books that they've written or, or read articles that you go, Oh, that name sounds familiar. Well, these guys were the cutting edge, Guys in living history back then. Um, we're talking like, you ever heard of the Civil War group, the Black Hats and the Centennial? Yes. Yep. Yeah, some of these guys were those guys. Campaigners before campaigners. Researchers before research. Was mm-hmm. Rob Ambrose Sr. associated with the park as a reenactor before your time? No, and um, before my time, my dad was associated with Capon State Park in West Virginia and the United States Air Force, so uh, he was a little busy right. during that era. <laughs> Wait, your dad's a veteran? I yeah. didn't know that, dude. Yeah. Your dad is one of my favorite people on the planet, and again, learning something new every time I get to hang out with you. I didn't know seniors a veteran. Yeah, 68 to 72. Basically everything in the in, in, in country, U.S., 
all Serve good. His, although did serve in Greenland. Flight line crash rescue was. Yo, make big. sure that man knows that Pat and Matt from the History Things podcast say thank you for your service. I will. I will let him know that. Absolutely. But yeah. So so he was he was a little busy uh, during the the centennial. Yeah, kind of, of course era. he was. Yeah. Um, doing his thing, and uh, so <laughs> there was a war on. Damn it! Yeah, there was. There was. And uh, the story tells us, I, I might not be here tonight if, if they wouldn't have called the plane back. He was on, really? going over, yeah. Hmm. I'm glad they yeah, did, Yeah, he buddy. was in a, a unit basically known as the Prime Beef. They're basically infantry for the Air Force. Oh, uh, sweet. So he, like, had his gunny sack and his M16 in the trunk of his car ready to go all the time. Oh, yeah. And literally they loaded him and his guys up in a C-130, and they said, hey, Sarge, where are we going? And they said, I can't really tell you where, but I can tell you it's Southeast Asia. And they were like, great. Is it this place called Vietnam? He says he was probably going to Korea. It was when the when the shooting started in Korea again in the, oh. the late. But still, oh. yeah. he was headed somewhere over there. Like, cool. And uh, they started taxing down the runway. And then I guess in Korea, cooler heads prevailed and they turned him around. Dude, I'm glad that happened, too, because your dad is a cool guy. I mean, you being here is a sweet byproduct of that. But your dad's a really cool guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's all right. I yeah. like him. He showed me the greatest trick ever to get a quick fire started. He like I told I tell you the story all the time, Matt. I think you know it. He pulls out the we couldn't get a fire going on a windy day one day, and out of nowhere, he just pulled out this magical bag of sawdust, like this random gallon size bag, and just in the most like West Virginia, like I know things you don't know. I'm a salt <laughs> of the earth man. He's just like we're gonna get this fire going, and in like half a second, like a fire mage. Pfft, full-blown roaring fire he is amazing so now that. i keep all my sawdust before i go to a reenactment just in case we're having a bitch of a timeline the fire because of him. it so, works senior's the man so cool so um so all right so some of the early names in living history um in the maryland community in this in this regional sphere are associated with fort frederick as it you know sort of comes out of the the bicentennial um Reenacting as a whole, is that one of the things, living history, is that one of the things that helped bring the park back to its sort of public prominence? Um, yeah, I would I would say. I mean, literally, and I, I, it, it, at least it feels like reading the documents and reading the newspaper articles, like its glory day literally was when the first Maryland was coming in the 60s and 70s. And during this time, because of these young movers and shakers, things were happening in the fort for improvement. Like at one point, of course it got destroyed by lightning at one point, but our original like 60, 70 foot flagpole, these guys designed and, hmm. and had it put in and the original of the full size 18 by 24 foot flag. Um, they were designing plans for gates. They were designing plans for the, the barracks for defenses, doing all these things. And some of it comes to fruition. Some of it doesn't, um, you know, eventually during the bicentennial 1976, um, Fort Frederick is one of Maryland's bicentennial sites, and we get money to rebuild the enlistment barracks. And Ross Kimmel again is the man who basically designs, well, does the research. Some architect, you know, another guy designs them per se. But, and this is one of those cool, like, you know, thank God things happen the way they happen. Originally, based on what they thought they knew, and the original drawings were going to be story and a half tall log cabins hmm. in the fort. <laughs> that had been pretty cool looking, but story and a half. So basically, full story in like a loft. Yeah. Right? Um, they were going to be interesting. Well, somebody, if I remember the story right, 
somebody was doing research at the Hollow Records, and they knew that Ross was working on stuff about Fort Frederick, and he happened to find this letter. And he said, Ross, you might want to check this out. And Ross looks at it and is what we know, we lovingly call the Hughes letter today, is the Samuel Hughes letter. When Samuel Hughes has been sent out to the fort to tell the Congress or tell the Assembly or the Congress both what the condition of the fort is before they make it into a POW camp in the Revolution. And he describes the buildings. Wow. And they literally were in the 11th hour, like getting ready to put this cabin cabin plan into motion. So he finds out through this that they were two-story white clabbered buildings with double porches and all the number of windows and doors and all this stuff. So the barracks we have today, although still not perfect, are so much closer to what was there versus what we could have got because somebody knew that this guy might be looking for this and he finds it goes, whoa, this is kind of a smoking gun situation. That's wild. That's like finding out like what your name could have, what your parents were going to name you instead of what they <laughs> did name you. Like, it's mm-hmm. my birthday today, right? So, right. like, my name is Patrick. I think I have a pretty cool name. I found out a few years ago, my dad and I were talking, they were going to name me Scott. I was like, <laughs> what the? F-? Like, what? Like, no offense to Scots out there, but, like, I'm not a Scott. No, you're definitely And I don't know if that's 35 years of bias now, because I've just been established as a Patrick, Pat. <laughs> I would not have hung out with you if you were a Scott. Like, thank you, right? <laughs> like, I would hate myself. I'd be like, dude, I'd kick my own ass. <laughs> but like that's kind of the same thing, right? You like you like you could have been log cabins, but mm-hmm. like you're really cool clappered white clappered buildings, but like you could have been Scott log yeah, cabins. Yeah, I mean, because because looking at it today, <laughs> if that would have happened, there's enough stuff that we have to say. Well, these buildings, as I explain them to people, I said we don't know if these are exactly right, but I like to believe that the guys who served here would come in and say, oh, that that looks similar. Because we don't have the exact plans, but we had this nice description that gave us a pretty good baseline, plus the foundations and stuff. So we know that the dimensions are right. We know that that, that there's a lot of things. There's some stuff that I would, if I was building it today, I would definitely do different. I would definitely rearrange the doors and windows. And um, I would... You'd put, like, windows where doors were and doors where windows were and do crazy stuff like that? It's well, not a Picasso piece, damn it. I know. <laughs> no, but but in all honesty, I mean, if you go to the bin there, I would more or less do what you're saying. God, I love doing that. That was a joke that just became real. Well, and I'll give you a real life why. Like, we have the fireplaces in the barracks. Right. And the doors, when you open the doors, are like right beside the fireplaces. So if you have the doors open, guess where the smoke goes? Right out the door. Mm-hmm. Right, basically in the room or out the door instead of going up the chimney like yeah. it should. Now, the doors close, it's fine. But as a living history museum, we have the doors open so people know they come in. So if we have a fire, that's an issue where I would have put the door more in the middle of the room between the two fireplaces, move the windows out more. Sure. Some stuff like that. But again, based on what we know, and they also use the Hessian barracks in Frederick. As a model. As a model as well. So sure. some of the, the, the things that they did in 76 were based off of them. Some of those things we've changed based on other research, based on British barracks and and things that we have. So we've, we've made a few modifications inside, moved walls around and stuff like that. Hmm. But so 76 was a big year, got the barracks and, you know, the barracks without them, it would not be as nearly as an interesting place. You got the barracks, no governor's mansion. Correct. Or what's the term? Governor's house. Governor's house. Officer's quarters, whichever. So 76 for the fort itself is kind of brings us almost to today. I mean, we got the visitor center in the late 70s, early 80s. 
and we're getting ready to redo the museum exhibit in there and stuff. But but it's really we haven't had any major major stuff happen that that either wasn't already there that we're just fixing or whatever. You know, new um, the new bath house a couple years ago, but that's not a history thing. But definitely better than going down in the creepy basement. Of You're the right. Old, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So when do you, uh, so you obviously been with the Maryland State Park System for quite a while now. Um, you were formerly at Gambrel State Park, mm-hmm. um, which has CCC connections all yep. of its own. Really cool statue up there at, yep. on High Knob. Um, when do you come into working at Fort Frederick? So I started in 2009 um, as a seasonal historical interpreter. Um, and I did that for four and a half years. Uh, before I got hired on full time, and I started out my first summer at Cunningham Falls, and then they, Cunningham Falls and Gambrel State Park are together. But then like they gave me, well, don't say they gave me. They assigned me to Gambrel for I was there for about a year and a half. So, um, yeah, I came in as a historical interpreter, and I, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I kind of always knew that public education was probably my thing. I wanted to be, growing up, I wanted to be a high school history teacher. Mm-hmm. And needless to say, I had sort of a experience in, in college, and I got to the point where I just wanted to graduate. <laughs> so I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't end up in the, in the, ed, the ed program. Um, I had some struggles my freshman year. Sure. Threw everything off. Sure. Happens. Um, but I you know, got, a, got my BA in um, history and political science and uh, learned a lot. Some good professors, all that stuff. Um, So, but I loved what I was doing there. Uh, But you're a seasonal, which means you're on contract for no more than 10 months out of the year. And getting paid very low wages made it hard to do. Um, But I also love the idea of the flat hat. Um, My dad's grandfather was theoretically a flat hat in the West Virginia Park Service from 1944 to 1972. Ah, legacy of uh, service with your family then. My dad's uncle was a West Virginia Park Ranger from, I think, 1966 to 2012, 15, somewhere around there. Same park. They're both at the same park. My dad worked there as a seasonal doing different stuff. Um, he actually lived in that park um, with his grandfather at one point. All, basically, everybody in my family except for me has worked at Cape State Park, including my wife um, in West Virginia. So I've always had a park ranger background in the back of my head. Um, I always loved parks. Of course, I love the battlefield parks and stuff, but I always had this, this connection to that. So, so wearing, you know, in my case, the khaki and green and wearing the flat hat was always kind of cool. And, you know, watching all those park rangers on the, the documentaries and stuff. And I'm like, I, I want to do that. There you go. Um, so that's, you know, that's where a lot of that, that came from. And, and in high school, I worked in the town, the town park, um, in the museum. So I'd kind of been in and out of museums and, and semi-professional living history stuff for a while. So I did worked in the town museum, high school, and partly through college. And uh, I worked for a uh, traveling um, living history program a little bit. 2008, I guess it was, through WVU with a friend of mine, uh, which was kind of fun. Did a lot of hands-on activities with kids at, like, fairs and festivals. 
So, you know, so, so I loved it. I mean, I've always been a military history guy, and the fact that I got to play with muskets and wear old-timey clothes every day pretty much excited me. And, but I knew the only way to make a real career of it in Maryland was to, to get on as a full-time ranger, and I knew that was probably going to require me to leave home uh, for a while, and I did luck out, and I didn't have to go too far from home, so I didn't have to move. It was a long commute, but it was worth it, and I, they even, at, when I was at Cunningham and Gambrel, they did let me play at history a little bit. Uh, did a Civil War event down at the Catoctin Furnace one year. Cool. Nice. Um, we were uh, doing the, oh my gosh, I can't remember which Federal Corps we were portraying. Uh, they marched through the village of Catoctin Furnace. First Corps. Yeah, I guess it was the first core um, on the way to Gettysburg. The only reason I know that is because they go right up 15. I mean, they essentially go the route of modern-day 15, and that's right up through that area. Yeah, well, so... Half the Army does, too. But. Yeah. But, I mean, famously, yeah. like, it's the one most associated as the first core. So sure. here's the other thing I like about you mentioned Catoctin Furnace. I love just the fact that a large number of cannonballs that were lobbed at the British at Yorktown were made right there at that furnace. That is supposedly the story, yes. I love that you said that word too. Like I like literally like we wasn't going to get into that, but I love that that's not actually a totally def- definite fact. I I believe that that's true. I think that the one that's more in dispute is did they make iron for, for the Merrimack? Yeah, I've heard that. I've never one. even heard that yeah, one. That's a I've thing they said. Yes, yeah. yes, they supposedly made iron plating for the Merrimack. I, so part of me believes the cannonball thing because kind of it would be like all hands on deck, right? Fledgling nation, kind of anybody that could, I get. But like, I don't, I don't doubt it. The um, the impression I get is they're trying to say that like the majority. I feel like that's what they're trying to say with the sign they have on the side of the road up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so and and then and then this is kind of one of those other interesting like they won the war <laughs> So Thomas Johnson, the governor, the first basically. Um, American governor, non-colonial governor of Maryland, owns Catoctin Furnace. Right. Mm-hmm. He also is involved with a guy by the name of Lancelot Jakes. Um, Not to be confused with Sir Lancelot of King Arthur's correct. Court. Correct. Lancelot Jakes also builds a furnace called Greenspring Furnace about two miles from Fort Frederick um, and is doing the same stuff there. And there's also apparently another little operation a little further down from Fort Frederick. So Lancelot Jakes and Thomas Johnson and their business forays connect at least obtusely Fort Frederick to Catoctin Furnace. And then you want to, you know, of course, the other weirdness, you know, we have the prisoners from Yorktown come to Fort Frederick, the cannonballs from Thomas Furnace. You think they smelled it in the air? They're like, Uh, something's familiar here. It's the the Lincoln (laughs) Kennedy conspiracy kind of situation. (laughs) But the fact that Thomas Johnson is a governor during the war, um, I would not be surprised that they were not making cannonballs that were used, you know, were sent to Yorktown, um, probably used other places as well. The, uh, what is it, Mount Etna Forge in Hagerstown area, the Antietam Forge. Like, Thomas Johnson basically owns or has something, is like a partner in, like, all of those. Sure. And, like, Mount Etna Forge makes cannons for the revolution. Um, so, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't doubt it, but I don't know if there's, like, any, like, document, and maybe there is. Somebody could correct me, because, again, I've... Catoctin Furnace was always sort of just at the, the periphery of what I was, I was doing. Um, and, again, they were really just sort of... And I don't mean this in a negative way, but they were sort of humoring me at letting me do a little bit of history stuff. Sure. At, when I was there, because I was an operations guy. I directed traffic, I did money, I did, you know, yeah. all that stuff. 
but I did some research on Civil War history and stuff for the area. I did that one program. I ended up getting a Civil War trails marker, put up a Gamberwood high knob um, while I was there. So I did a little bit of stuff, and of course it got me a little more interested in the CCC because of their relationship to to Gambrel State Park and to the Frederick City watershed that they built. And they actually built facilities that are in Cunningham Falls State Park because Cunningham Falls State Park and Catoctin National Park were once upon a time all one facility. Is that why the bridge across 15 exists? That scary rusted bridge? No, that just gets you over to the furnace from the from the other part of the park. So no. no. So they split <laughs> basically, and I don't remember the reasoning, but they split be- down route 77. They split those two parks. So the national park got the one side, Maryland got the other. So like there's a big, pav- a couple big pavilions and stuff that were built by the, the CCC down there. So I'd got to enjoy and, and, and revel a little bit of history. Um, and then I got back to, to Fort transfer back to Fort Frederick in uh, 14, fall of 14, maybe. And then um, I guess the next year they, they gave me back kind of, well, I don't say gave me back, but put me in charge of the, the programming at the fort. And I've been... The rest is history, the as is, they say? Yes, the rest is history, as they say. I couldn't let you not say it. Yeah. I mean, it was right there. You looked like you were going to deviate away from it. It's like, no, 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 no. It's right there. Say it, say it. It's right in front of you. Uh, so with us being come full circle and now back at Fort Frederick, now yeah. in the, the Ambrose era, yeah. if you will. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, two question, two part question, I should say. Okay. Um, are you there for the 300th anniversary? And, and even if you're not, do you have any kind of pie in the sky, I would love to see this happen sort of project for... Fort Frederick. Did you just ask him if he's going to be there in 35 years? Yeah. We're interpreters. We die on the job. I know this. <laughs> Backtrack to that. It's a personal, sort of personal story there in a second. But um, <laughs> will I be there for the 300th? I don't know if I'll still be wearing the uniform, but I, if I'm around, I would like to think that, that, that somebody would call me up and say, hey, Come on out. Come on out. We'll trot you out on stage and <laughs> let you wave at the crowd one last time. Rob, put down your putting. This, 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 this. I this, pooped this, myself. This, this is the greatest, 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 greatest. Yeah, you're a Lou Gehrig. <laughs> you're you're going to be Lou Gehrig. Yeah, right. That would be awesome. I would. I Nobody would know what was going on. They'd be like, why is that other old guy clapping? <laughs> is he crying? Yeah. <laughs> So beautiful. You don't even know who that is. So yeah, I mean, I look. I know that I can probably retire in my early sixties, but you know, if I still love what I'm doing, absolutely. And my wife hasn't decided we're going to move to Acapulco or something. <laughs> There's always that. Well, Family first. I mean, why not? That's one of my favorite things about both of you guys. Being a ranger means something to you guys. When you put on your uniforms, like it means the thing it meant the first day you did it. Like, well, you guys. Are no way more than I do, right? But obviously, I feel like I'm kind of in the club because I have a lot of friends that wear the khaki and green and the green and gray and things like that. But like being around that club, I know there's a lot of people around who've been in the who are lifers who are kind of bitter and jaded as you can be when you do something for 20 and 30 years. <laughs> a lot of jaded rangers. Yeah. And like, I like, and like, look, nobody is without fault and like everything has its ups and downs and you guys are both lifers for your, your various parks and, and services. So I understand that there's, there's in your experiences ups and downs as well. But like, I love and I'm inspired every moment 
by the fact that you guys still very obviously love what you do. It's awesome. So I just want to say that while we were kind of touching on that, Thank like you. you guys are both super fucking cool we dudes. Do try. So, um, Thank you. Rob is cooler than you, Matt. Though, I just know, want to say that I for know. the record. I, I, his I, I, hat I, has his name on it. Do you see that? Like, if I didn't know who he was, now I do. I Ambrose. It's it's from a previous life. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I I would like to hope, and I know, and I was actually talking about it to another day with some of our <clears throat> some of our seasonal employees. I said, you know, I. I You're know. giving him the I won't be around forever no, talk? No, I was giving him the I'm getting jaded speech. Ah, got it. Well, um, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I, as a as a ranger, maybe not even as an interpretive ranger, but as my general ranger, it was like, there's things I don't do that I used to do, and there's things that I do now that I've been like... They took away ago. your gun. Right. No, 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 like literally <laughs> simple stuff kidding. like like wearing my very, like, dressed-down T-shirt with, like, a pair of my, like, sort of regular like ranger pants it's like i would have never done that a few years ago i've been like oh that's so i'd have had to wear like my car hearts or something mm, you know yeah. just little things like just little things you kind of see some mission creep in yourself and you're like oh i guess i should try to bring myself rein myself tighten back, it back in, up. tighten it up a yeah. little bit i know that sounds silly and a lot of people wouldn't care but i i, I caught that i was like i've done this two days in a row now oh mm-hmm. i should all right, well, you that fix up. it. It's on yeah. record now. Fix it. Get your shit together, Rob. <laughs> yeah, so, but you but you get that way. Uh, and, of course, uh, I think before we, we started recording, somebody, you mentioned something about it's very much August. Yeah. yeah. It's very much August. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. And August every year is the, about the time that everybody at the park is about done with yep. everybody at the park. You're burned. And that happens, I think, in a lot. And I can tell you in my non-historically interpretive kind of profession, like, we're all burnt out. Like, sure. I think everybody in our office has already beat the shit out of each other yeah. right now. So, like, <laughs> something about August. Yeah. So cool people are born in this month, but everybody is also worn out in this month. Yeah. Because it's hot as hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. And, and you know, I do know that sometimes you need some new blood. You need some new ideas. The last two years with COVID and stuff and changes and it's not telling the staff, it, I know that I'm a little stale uh, in some respects. And, uh, I, you know, I've got I've to work on that. Like an old potato chip. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I'm still good. Yeah, it's still salty. You're like a you're like a <laughs> Tostito that's kind of stale. Like I could taste the salt, but the chip is weird. But you're like, I could still eat this. This is weird. So, also as a as a side note, next year is 2022. Next year's 100th anniversary of Fort Frederick State Park. You were mentioning 300 of the fort, but our park, and I'm not quite sure if we're going to celebrate next year or in actually in 23 because the legislation that created the park was not passed until like December of 22. Ah. So we we're not we're still debating when exactly we want to celebrate it. Well, figure out how you're programming. Maybe we need a little more time. 23. Here's yeah. how it is. <laughs> you just do it right now. It's a year-long celebration. Our 300th year and you start from the day and you go a full Well, year. and we've we've discussed that option too as Great sort minds. of as, Great as minds. 100th year. What did well, I say 300? Yeah, yeah. cuz we were you're talking about the Oh, uh, you're yeah. right. Yes, 100th year. Yeah. So I was there for 260. Um I figure I'll I'll see a few more of the big quote-unquote anniversaries. 275. Yeah. Um 300 would be interesting. I, I hope <laughs> I'm still around. Now, there was a second part to your question and I have totally forgotten it. This is hypothetical. Oh, the what what pie in the sky? If you could sure. do pretty much anything, what would you want to do for the benefit of your site? Oh my god, Fort Frederick! If if we could do unlimited budget, but only one thing, find the town. Well, we're still on the search for that. 
Um, that was going to be my backup one. I have a low-hanging fruit one, but that was the yeah. other one. So, so here's what I would tell you. If I could get one thing, one thing, and, and, it's, and you, can, you can either make it totally pie in the sky and I get it all, or I just get one part of it. I would be okay <laughs> with one part of it. Is the fact that the fort, when you come in it, you cannot, without a picture and without describing it, you cannot, and you do not do it justice, the way the defenses would have been set up in the fort. Mm. minimally, I would love to get the Northeast Bastion redone with the cannon mounted on it and the powder magazine. So that way I can show people this is how the fort would have been set up. Now, I would love to get the, the entire interior defenses done, but if I could just get that one, it would be the Northeast Bastion with the powder magazine. Now, if I could get, you know, if I could do sort of like give me more wishes, I would say if I could get the fort totally restored back to its 1756 appear, 57 appearance, that would be my like give me more wishes. But if I could get the one thing, it would be that one bastion. Yes, I'd love to have the governor's house. Yes, eventually, hopefully, we'll get the flagpole back in. And, you know, there's some other things I'd like to do. But, but if I could get that one thing, because for visual purposes, to show people that was done. It's so hard to describe, and half the time you describe it, and they go, uh-huh, and you're like, they have no clue. <laughs> yeah, right. Even though we also have a, a little, like, placard that sort of shows it, but I still don't know if it does... does clicks. It, does yeah. it, it clicks. And, of course, one of the reasons it's hard is because we would have to, it would have to be done in a way that the, the defenses would be created that it would not put any stress on the actual wall. Like so the what, structure of the fort. This, yeah. yeah, so it would have to have, like, a, an iron, or a uh, steel girder, like, frame inside and it would it would it would it could be done i've seen it sort of done other places but it would be a project Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but if i could get if that's the only one thing i could get in my my time that would be it that's a great answer i was going to go with things like the governor's residence the village like you said that was but that was that's a good one i mean like i said i would love to have it i mean i can't actually imagine what the fort would look like with the governor's house in it because it would change the whole space yeah, because it would not look as open. It would close in the parade field a little more, and and it would be great to do. But I think that that overall, I think people come away with a decent understanding of what that well, building looked like. The inside. foundation is there. The foundation's there, and we have the room set up in the one barracks to represent that space. Mm-hmm. So I think people come away with at least a good enough understanding of. Okay. I kind of get it. I mean, big rectangular white building that looked a lot like the two you can see right now. Right. That's why the Bastion one's cool, because that's that's yeah. a visual that they're not, not getting, getting at any point in the right. fort. We'd also like to shoot our cannon off of the Bastion. We think that would be pretty cool. straight. That yeah. would be very cool. I'm not even used to you guys still having a cannon. That's such a new development in the last few years for you guys. Like having Does it have a field carriage or a garrison carriage? We have, Sorry, just a dork it's, it's, out. It's, a, it's on a garrison carriage. Actually, it's on a ship's carriage. I was going to say, it's on yeah. a naval let's, carriage. Let's be specific. It's a, it's a ship's carriage because it's wooden, it has wooden trucks. Nice. Little wheels yeah. for mm-hmm. those not in the know. Uh, a garrison carriage typically has iron, iron Some trucks. skateboarder out there is like, wooden trucks? Bro, what kind of thrashing are you doing? <laughs> You're going to crack a chip wheel, bro. Yeah, so we did, you know, when I was there as a seasonal, we did artillery, like, all the time. And then we discovered there were some deficiencies with our tube. And we had to that shut happens it. happens when you get older. Yeah, well, and it was old. I mean, we, we think that, uh, well, we think. I'm sure there's a record somewhere, but I'm pretty sure the cannons that we have dated to the 70s anyways. 
So, like the 1970s? Yeah. Okay, I was about to say, like, we fired originals there, boy. <laughs> no, like, we, do, we do have three original tubes on site, but no, not that we ever fire. Um, what? You have three original? Dude, every time. Every... <laughs> Did you just break this news casually right now? <laughs> you have three original tubes on site? Yeah. Yeah, so next time I'm at the fort, can I see those? If we get a chance, I can. I, the one's easy to see. It's in the visitor center. That's an original tube? Yeah, that's an original Confederate Napoleon. I didn't know that. I yeah. thought that was a repro. That's no, an original? It's, it's original. Nice. It's had rotten shot fired out of it. Where are the other two? The other two are in storage. One is an 18th century uh, six-pounder, and one is probably a Napoleonic six-pounder. So early 19th century. Nice. Right, I was I just talking. These. I was just talking about rotten shot today at work. Yeah, yeah. yeah you come and put your hand in. I mean, you can see some of. Put your hand in the in the tube of um, of our our cannon. It clearly, <laughs> clearly had some rotten shot fired out of it once. Please explain rotten shot for our listeners, gentlemen. Just because now we're here. Well, rotten shot basically is a anti personnel charge that is 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 set up in a way that it explodes in the barrel before it leaves the barrel, so that you can literally get the spread on this sort of many musket balls or pieces of iron or lead or whatever you're shooting in your rotten shot will we'll start making it spread basically before it ever leaves the muzzle of the cannon. We're talking like the enemy is on top of you, and I mean like yards, like tens of yards away, and you've got one last chance to kill them or get killed. So you take run the risk of bursting your tube by firing this rotten shot. So it leaves indentions inside of your tube um, where the shot had started to spread and started to come out of it. So it's like a nastier version of canister shot. Uh, From what I understand, and Rob, please do correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's beyond canister in the sense that you have run out of canister and you are putting, like, case shot down the tube without a fuse on it. Oh, Yeah, I, that that too, and I know in like some cases it's literally just cut up chunks of lead. It's oh, okay. I've I've, I've got some conf- I have a piece of Confederate rotten shot. It's basically it's square stock, but it's like lead. Wow. Lovely. I have, to, I have to find it. I'll show it to you sometime. <laughs> yeah, please do. Um, a buddy of mine dug it somewhere and said this is this is rotten shot, and but and you can see where. And and maybe it was a Confederate thing because some of the gouges are more square inside of the of the tube hmm. so yeah so we have three original cannons well next time i come and see you we're we're looking at those in the vault there um what's coming up for the fort before we get out of here rob i know that we're in the august month of the year uh the f- year is not over we're we got some stuff coming up in september um so i think by the time this episode comes out there might be like a week to 10 days before uh the event in mid-september for you guys so why don't you tell our listeners, sort of what the next like six to eight months looks like for Fort Frederick. Yeah, so um, the next event that will be relevant when uh, for the podcast is going to be September 18th. We're doing the One Fort Three Wars program. It's going to be pretty small, pretty pretty laid back, but we are going to try to you know highlight the three um, major. Actually, I should say it's gonna actually probably going to be. Not probably. It's going to be one fort three centuries. Yeah, it's going to become the timeline event smashed into it. No, no, because I have someone's going to do CCC era. Okay. Um, impression. So we're going to do have F- French and Indian War, Revolutionary War, Civil War, 
and um, some Civilian Conservation Corps oh. history going on, talking about the, the three centuries of Fort Frederick, 18th, 19th, and 20th. So we're bringing awesome. the podcast to life, is yes. what we're doing in September. Yes, absolutely. Again, I don't expect to have more than a, a handful of guys, but you know, with our visitation and what we try to do, we like the more intimate. We like to be able to talk one-on-one. Um, just give people the idea, understanding that Fort Frederick is, was more than just one thing. Yep. Well, let's change the world out there, folks. Let's start flooding Fort Frederick with visitors. Like I said, this is one of the coolest, most important historical sites you've probably never heard of. You think it's off the beaten path. It's really not. It's off of a major interstate. It's about five seconds off of the exit from that interstate. So, like, it's super easy to find once you know the area you're looking for. Indian Springs, Big Pool, Clear Springs, all these places, things as like that. As soon as you think you've gone too far, go just a little yeah, bit just keep farther. going. If you think Hagerstown's the end of the world, it feels like it sometimes. Just another shot, boys <laughs> and girls out there. But no, uh, but just keep going. It's about uh, 20 miles or so past Hagerstown. So yeah, exit 12 off of I-70. We, uh, we look go. forward to your program in September there, uh, Rob. I'll be there to support you guys in the yeah, fort. We're bringing some it. friends out. We're going to be a part of that program. Very excited for that. Uh, as always, you can kind of keep up with some of the ongoings at Fort Frederick through what we do here uh, at the History Things podcast. I know that social media and the Maryland State Park systems are not always friends, so there's not a great social media presence for you guys. Um, is there is there a public? I know there's a friends page, and that's a private group. Is there a public presence for the fort at all? Currently, there is not. Um, wow, wow. It, it is part of my, um, for what it's worth, I've been working on a... Uh, interpretive plan for next season and a basically a public relations plan. Nice. Um, so I'm I'm hoping to have some conversations with some folks, particular friends group, about doing some other things besides just the group. But anybody can join. You just have to know about it. You just have to know about it and 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 you know invite yourself. Well, it's the Friends of Fort Frederick on Facebook. If you just search for it, you'll find it. Yeah. Um, they're full of great information about some of the various things that aren't necessarily ran by the fort itself, like the market fair and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So um, tons of great stuff. Fort Frederick is one of Matt Mine's favorite historical sites. So yep. when we when we were talking about doing this show, like we, we discussed, this was one of the first shows we knew we wanted to do. Uh, we just had to make the logistics and like when and where and getting it right. So we were so excited to get you on for quarter three this year. Thanks for coming back and hanging out with us tonight and continuing the story of Fort Frederick. The story doesn't just end with Rob Ambrose in the modern time. As we discover, there are new things that are discovered about this park and this fort and this site all the time. There's a village out there that at some point they're going to find. There's a cemetery that you heard Matt and I say it. We're going to find. We're going to find it personally. (laughs) Um, No, So there's, there's... I, I can feel it in every ounce of my being, Rob. There is more to come from Fort Frederick, and I can't wait for what that looks like when uh, when you're running the show like you are now. So thanks for coming by and hanging out with us no on, the, on the History Things podcast. So a couple things before we get out of here, ladies and gentlemen. This is the official end of quarter three's cycle of episodes, right? We're dropping our follow-up. That's what you've been listening to all night tonight, which means quarter four is on deck. And Matt... Quarter four, we're going to a very dangerous place. The place that if you asked us both, we probably, if in all of human history, if you asked us, where, what are a few of the places you would never, ever want to go, this place might be at the top of our list. Dan Carlin definitely said it was at the top of his list. We are going to go to the Western Front, February 1916. We are going to go to Verdun. We are going to be hanging out with author Jonathan Bracken. He is going to talk to us about his book, 
the Verdun Regiment, which follows the 151st Regiment, which is uh, a group of, it's a French Army unit comprised of guys regionally from the Verdun area. And um, I am so excited to get into this topic. Matt is super excited to get into this topic. We've, We've been to, yeah. teasing this one all season, and now it's finally here. It's here. I've read the I've read through John's book. It's fantastic, and he's going to give a, a great presentation on the one five one, what they did in the war, and then of course a deep dive on their two actions that they have. They're they're at Verdun twice. Um, like much of the French army, they get cycled through there a couple yes. of times. Now, what's cool about this episode is we're going to be piloting something new that we're hoping to do for you guys in season three. There's going to be a visual component to this show. So very soon you're going to start seeing us advertise a YouTube page. Uh, so start looking for the History Things podcast on YouTube in the next coming weeks. And from there, there'll be more information. But we are going to have a visual component to John's show. So we very, very... Uh, much want you guys to tune in and check that out when that gets off the ground. If you if you very quiet and you listen, everybody, can you hear the guns of the Western Front? You hear them? We're close. It's only a few weeks away. Very excited. So uh, we very much look forward uh, to that episode. Um, in the meantime, keep up with us on social media. Um, independently, you can follow Matt on Instagram at, at Matt Borders Books. You can follow me independently on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at History Things with Pat. Most importantly, you can follow the show. Follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at the History Things Podcast. You can get in touch with us via email, questions, comments, compliments at... Um, what is our email address? I forgot. History things <laughs> podcast at gmail.com. Uh, so you can send us that there. You can download uh, this episode, all episodes of the history things podcast on most major podcast apps. Um, if you're looking for ways to help the show out, we'd really appreciate if you left us a, a review and a five-star rating. Um, and then check out our show sponsor. Uh, the history things podcast is sponsored by uh, TR historical, your one-stop shop for all your historical fan gear needs. Uh, go to trhistorical.com. Use the promo code History Things. I still can't get over that. We have a freaking promo code. Like, how cool are we? Uh, you can get 10% off your next purchase on all your really cool history swag. Obviously, you guys got me things from them for my birthday, right? I know there's no cake, but you guys got me History Things gifts? I got you books. Yes. No, in real talk. <laughs> Matt got me not just books, but like a freaking huge book. It's a great map, uh, atlas, I guess, of Civil War maps. So I'm very excited to, to get into that. So... Uh, thanks for spending some time with me on my birthday, fellas, here in the podcast studio. Thank you out there uh, for tuning in. Obviously, when this episode's airing, it's not my birthday, but let's just celebrate like it is. So uh, <laughs> for the History Things podcast, for my uh, co-host, Matt Borders, for my guest tonight, uh, Park Ranger Rob Ambrose, good buddy of ours, we thank you all for hanging out with us. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you in quarter four as we head to the Western Front. This has been the History Things podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you later. Have a good night. You've been listening to the History Things podcast. Follow the guys on Facebook and Instagram at the History Things podcast for all the latest news and exclusives. Make sure to also follow Pat and Matt on their social medias at History Things with Pat and at Matt Borders Books. Have a question, comment, or compliment for the show? Send us an email at historythingspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show.